Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm in a pretzel. What are you? A dog? Yeah. Okay. Life is a lot like working our way around the game board. Here's some handies. Landing on the spaces that matter. Stop here, very warriors. Go warriors. In this building, in this room. You may remember. 24 years ago. A family first special WFAA did after the mass shooting at Columbine High School. Death and then signs that help me, I'm bleeding to death. Students and a media tech. I sound so young. <laughs> and John Matthews is a school safety expert. My first and, uh, reaction is I wish I had the dark hair again. And if I had one word for the parents, it'd be perseverance. We featured John Matthews, a crime and school safety expert, still is. I like all the new rules and stuff. I didn't at first, but now that I think about it. And Erica Wise, then Erica Dunkley, who was a senior and student journalist at the time. Tornado and fire drill. And that's it. <laughs> no active shooter drills. No, that wasn't even a th- a term. Prior to Columbine, we had never heard of active shooter. And unfortunately, active shooter is part of our vernacular now. In light of what's happened, say, in Colorado last week. 800 miles from Columbine. 1,200 people joined us here in the cafeteria. South Grand Prairie High School held a parent-student town hall. People that wanted to be here and offer up their thoughts and opinions. Young people given cover by SWAT team members. What happened at Columbine shattered the collective conscious. This is insane. This will never happen again. I never thought it would happen again. Mass shootings didn't just happen again, but again and again and again. There's so much more now, and it's just, it's like whack-a-mole. We counted 118 school mass shootings alone since 1999. I literally never would have thought that 24 years later, I'd be doing this same interview. Never. Fitting in, being popular, those were both ingredients that caused the combustion in Colorado. It's like we're stuck on one space of the game board. SROs, we were talking about backpacks, we were talking about metal detectors. 24 years later, we're still debating those things. John says law enforcement has gotten better in its response to active shooters. The training has helped. We've got to constantly evolve because the shooter's evolving. Anybody see Lauren Cross? We have yet to pull a card that solves our mass shooting problem. Hey, look. Erica is now married. Thank you found a home in Arlington, and a good long career in real estate. I get calls constantly. John writes and consults on mass shootings now more than ever. The rest of the time... You can smell the flowers, the roses. ...is spent with family in his winery and vineyard. Yeah, that's what it's supposed to be. (laughs) It's a total juxtaposition to the rest of my life. It really is kind of my therapy. South Grand Prairie High School has now double doors with controlled access. I think it's gonna help us all to grow as a school and individually. It's cool to see my, me and my friends, our reaction when it happened 24 years later, you know? I don't know, I guess it was just emotional. We are all living life rolling the dice. (laughs) 
Here's to hoping well, I called the school. we start making the right moves. Uh, but you got to persevere. How can you retire if you think you could help and you could save lives? In DFW. I don't know. I'm Jobin Punniker. Family and friends in Uvalde are still mourning now more than a year since a man with a semi-automatic rifle killed 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary School. And for law enforcement, last week's one-year mark is a sad reminder of the mistakes their colleagues made that day. NPR's, as NPR's Martin Costi reports, the state of Texas has now passed a law requiring more training to try to avoid repeating those failures. Everybody agrees on this. Police took too long to directly confront the killer that day. 73 minutes from the arrival of the first officers until the moment a Border Patrol team finally went through a classroom door and shot him. In that time, 376 officers from various agencies showed up and then held back. Sympathetic hesitation is actually a fairly normal human impulse. You're not going? Should I not go if you're not going? Clint Bruce is former military special operations who now works with police. He says you have to teach them to overcome that impulse in these situations. Very explicit, very clear guidance that you do not have to pause. You need to go. That was the central lesson of the Columbine High School massacre in 1999. Police should move in as fast as possible to stop the killing and then stop the dying. And trainers believe the best way to learn this is to do it. These Texas cops are running through active shooter scenarios in a vacant building near Dallas. They're firing simulated ammunition, trying to find and stop the killer, even as wounded role players cry for help. This is ALERT. That stands for Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training, something created here in Texas two decades ago. Its active shooter courses have become a federal standard, and now Texas is requiring all its cops to do 16 hours of this training every two years. The courses are updated often. For instance, trainer Randy Knight tells this class that research is showing that there's rarely a second shooter, so once cops have stopped one killer, they shouldn't leave wounded people behind to go looking for possible other attackers. Do these victims in here that are bleeding out, do they have time for me to go chase a ghost? No, because before I even get off this first floor, they'll have bled out. One clear failure in Uvalde was leadership. A Texas State House report said the role of incident commander was, quote, not effectively performed by anyone. This alert training session is stressing the importance of command and that it's not a matter of rank. Trainer Kevin Willis tells one officer to imagine being the first cop on the scene and how he would identify himself as he calls it in on the radio. Who are you? 47. Who are you? Patrol. Nope. Command. command. You are command. Here's what I need to establish right here. The first officer helps make or break this entire scene. Command can be transferred as the incident progresses and more people show up, preferably to an officer outside the building. But it needs to be someone who knows the situation and is willing to take command. Steve Iams says willingness is key. Based in Missouri, he trains officers around the country. And when Uvalde comes up, he tells cops that they also need to prepare for this mentally. You would talk with your family and acknowledge that, though unlikely, this job may call me to uh, step into an environment on behalf of others. Reconcile that decision before you have to make it. 
uh, before the hair stands up on the back of their neck. And as an example of mental preparedness, he points to the police who responded to the active shooter attack on a school in Nashville in March. It's seen in police circles as a textbook case of doing this right. Sadly, for those who are looking for examples of cops responding to active shooters right or wrong, there's always a new supply of case studies for the trainers to choose from. Martin Costi, NPR News, Irving, Texas. There have been more than 300 school shootings since the beginning of 2022. Kylie Rich, who is a junior at McGuanago High School, says there have been so many shootings that gun violence seems inevitable and students are scared. If a water bottle drops on the floor and that causes students to, you know, take a pause or like when the announcement tone comes on and you're like, is this going to be like the dreaded announcement? I mean, that's what a lot of students are feeling. Rich was one of dozens of students and experts to speak during an anti-violence forum in Milwaukee. Experts say there are several things schools can do, including anti-bullying programs and creating a culture of empathy. Corrine Hess, Wisconsin Public Radio. Gusty Renegade, Context of White Supremacy, the Catherine Massey Book Club. Today's date, Friday, excuse me, Thursday, June 1, 2023. So I have been told this is our fifth study session on Dave Cullen's Columbine. So we had an extra guest on the program this past weekend talking about this very subject matter, school shooters. The intro for that broadcast with Dr. Flowers. I had the song that's playing right now playing in the background, but I suspected that you probably wouldn't be able to hear the lyrics. I didn't play it that loud purposely because that wasn't the feature. This is not Boogaloo time. But I did think those lyrics might be important. So the song is... Prayer for the Youth, or excuse me, Youth of America. Short, Youth of America is the song uh, by the group Bird Brain, one of my favorites. The lyrics say a prayer for the youth of America, and I can't stand this anymore. All the dead kids lying on your door, and you don't hear a word they're telling you. You're all dead. You're all dead. You've been wasted. Don't believe a thing they're selling you. Got a carrot on a stick in front of you, taking back from the Holocaust. You know, we can't even use it now, and it was yours in the first place. You're all dead. You're all dead. You've been wasted. Incidentally, this is from the mega hit 
Scream, and they're still doing sequels to that 25 years later. Uh, but this is from the first Scream, 1996, which I would bet all kinds of money. Dylan and Eric watched that movie. That would be right their genre, teen Scream flick, and this is like the definitive teen scream flick of that decade maybe of the past quarter century and this is the beginning of the whole billion dollar franchise i'm sure they saw about killing children how could they not watch it gore and guts how could they not watch it um but this is on that soundtrack incidentally it doesn't have one of those stickers affixed to it like you know danger might you know poison your brain or have you thinking all kinds of wild thoughts if you got some mental problems maybe avoid it doesn't have that sticker like they slap on you know Easy E and Tupac, you know. Anyway, the news reports that we heard on top of that, uh, starting this broadcast, everything was from the last seven days, and every single report mentioned Columbine. That's another point where I say, My God, I'm embarrassed that I did not investigate this case sooner uh the relevance of this case to right now and even to racism white supremacy but the first case uh that was in texas from last week they were talking about the changes in school security over that time and having to constantly adapt because things are constantly changing and of course we got white people and guns i mean yeah of course uh also in texas the second audio report, they were talking about Uvalde and the failure didn't go in there to immediately stop the gunman. Supposed to do it ASAP. Lots of those failures. I could have included the coward of Broward Scott Peterson. One T Scott Peterson trial started this week, but that's Parkland and we'll get to that later. The last segment, they talked about the PTSD of being a student now where Columbine happens regularly. They said 303 school shootings since the beginning of 2022. Wow. PTSD for students. They said a bottle of water. Whoa, was that Dylan Roof? Whoa, what's going on? They said an announcement comes on. Uh oh. Is this the one? Rebel and vodka are back. Active shooter drill. We need to get down. What? Do I need to call my parents in case I won't see them? Z told us she was talking with her offspring. Z's mom told us, and she said, Man, she asked, Why did you have children? That would also be something to think about. Are we going to send our child off to school? And hope that Eric, Dylan, allow them to make it back home safely. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy, Columbine, Audio Segment 1.
27. Black. Eric was evolving inside. Sophomore year, the changes began to show. For his first 15 years, Eric had concentrated on assimilation. Dylan had sought the same goal, with less success. Despite the upheavals of moving, Eric always made friends. Social status was important. They were just like everybody else, a classmate said later. Eric's neighbor described him as nice, polite, preppy, and a dork. High school was full of dorks. Eric could live with that for a while. Sophomore year, he tried an edgier look, combat boots, all-black outfits, and grunge. He started shopping at a trendy shop called Hot Topic and the Army Surplus Store. He liked the look. He liked the feeling. Their buddy Chris Morris began sporting a beret. That was a little much, Eric thought. He wanted to look different, not retarded. Eric was breaking out of his shell. He grew boisterous, moody, and aggressive. Sometimes he was playful, speaking in funny voices and flirting with girls. He had a lot of ideas, and he began expressing them with confidence. Dylan never did. Most of the girls who knew Eric described him as cute. He was aware of the consensus, but didn't quite accept it. He responded candidly to one of those chain email questionnaires asking for likes, dislikes, and personal attributes. Under looks, he wrote, five foot ten, one forty, skinny, but handsome, some say. The one thing he would like to change about himself was his weight. Such a freaking runt. He'd always hated his appearance. Now at least he had a look. Eric took some flack for the new getup. Older kids and bigger guys razzed him sometimes, but nothing exceptional. And he was talking back now and provoking confrontations. He'd shaken off his silence, along with the preppy uniform. Dylan remained quiet right up until the end. He wasn't much for mouthing off, except in rare sudden bursts that freaked everyone out a little. He followed Eric's fashion lead, but a less intense version, so he took a lot less ribbing. Eric could have silenced the taunts any time by conforming again, but by this point he got a kick out of standing out. The impression I always got from them was they kind of wanted to be outcasts, another classmate said. It wasn't that they were labeled that way. It's what they chose to be. Outcast was a matter of perception. Kids who slapped that label on Eric and Dylan meant the boys rejected the preppy model, but so did hundreds of other kids at the school. Eric and Dylan had very active social calendars and far more friends than the average adolescent. They fit in with a whole thriving subculture. Their friends respected one another and ridiculed the conformity of the vanilla wafers looking down on them. They had no desire to emulate the jocks. Could there be a faster route to boredom? For Dylan, different was difficult. For Eric, different was good. For Halloween that year, Eric Dutro, a junior, wanted to go as Dracula. He needed a cool coat, something dramatic. He had a flair for theatrics. So his parents picked up a long black duster at Sam's Club. The kids referred to this as a trench coat. The costume didn't work out, but the trench coat was cool. Eric Dutro hung on to it. He started wearing it to school. It made quite an impression. The trench coat turned a whole lot of heads, and Dutro loved turning heads. He had a hard time at school. Kids at Columbine picked on him. Kids would ridicule him relentlessly, calling him a freak and a faggot. 
Eventually he fought back the only way he knew how, by upping the ante. If they were going to call him Freak, he was going to give them one hell of a freak show. The trench coat made a nice little addition to his freak drobe. Not surprisingly, Dutro hung with a bunch of kids who liked turning heads, too. After a while, several of them were sporting trench coats. They would dress all in black and wear the long coats even in the summer. Somewhere along the line, someone referred to them as the Trench Coat Mafia, TCM for short. It stuck. Eric Dutro, Chris Morris, and a handful of other boys were pretty much the core of the TCM, but a dozen more were often associated with the TCM as well, whether they sported trench coats or not. Eric and Dylan were not among them. Each of them knew some of the TCM kids, and Eric especially would become buddies with Chris. That was as close as they came. Eventually, after the TCM heyday was over, Eric got himself a trench coat. Dylan followed. They wore them to the massacre for both fashion and functional considerations. The choice would cause tremendous confusion. 28. Media Crime The trench coat mafia was mythologized because it was colorful, memorable, and fit the existing myth of the school shooter as outcast loner. All the Columbine myths work that way, and they all sprang to life incredibly fast. Most of the notorious myths took root before the killer's bodies were found. We remember Columbine as a pair of outcast goths from the Trenchcoat Mafia, snapping and tearing through their high school, hunting down jocks to settle a long-running feud. Almost none of that happened. No goths, no outcasts, nobody snapping. No targets, no feud, and no trench coat mafia. Most of those elements existed at Columbine, which is what gave them such currency. They just had nothing to do with the murders. The lesser myths are equally unsupported. No connection to Marilyn Manson, Hitler's birthday, minorities, or Christians. Few people knowledgeable about the case believe those myths anymore. Not reporters, investigators, families of the victims, or their legal teams. And yet, most of the public takes them for granted. Why? Media defenders blame the chaos. Two thousand witnesses, wildly conflicting reports, who could get all those facts straight? But facts were not the problem, nor did time sort them out. The first print story arrived in an extra edition of the Rocky Mountain News. It went to press at three o'clock on Tuesday afternoon, before the bodies in the library were found. The Rockies' 900-word summary of the massacre was an extraordinary piece of journalism, gripping, empathetic, and astonishingly accurate. It nailed the details and the big picture, two ruthless killers picking off students indiscriminately. It was the first story published that spring to get the essence of the attack right, and one of the last. It is an axiom of journalism that disaster stories begin in confusion and grow clearer over time. Facts rush in, the fog lifts, an accurate picture solidifies. The public accepts this. But the final portrait is often furthest from the truth. One hour into the Columbine horror, news stations were informing the public that two or more gunmen were behind it. Two hours in, the trench coat mafia were to blame. The TCM were portrayed as a cult of homosexual goths in makeup, orchestrating a bizarre death pact 
for the year 2000. Ludicrous or not, the TCM myth was the most defensible of the big media blunders. The killers did wear trench coats. A small group had named themselves after the garment a year earlier. A few kids put the two together, and it's hard to blame them. It seemed like a tidy fit. But the crucial detail, unreported Tuesday afternoon, was that most kids in Clement Park were not citing the TCM. Few were even naming Eric and Dylan. In a school of 2,000, most of the student body didn't even know the boys. Nor had many seen gunfire directly. Initially, most students told reporters they had no idea who attacked them. That changed fast. Most of the 2,000 got themselves to a television or kept a constant cell phone vigil with viewers. It took only a few TV mentions for the trench coat connection to take hold. It sounded so obvious. Of course, trench coats, trench coat mafia. TV journalists were actually careful. They used attribution and disclaimers like believed to be or described as. Some wondered out loud about the killer's identities and then described the TCM, leaving viewers to draw the link. Repetition was the problem. Only a handful of students mentioned the TCM during the first five hours of CNN coverage, virtually all fed from local news stations. But reporters homed in on the idea. They were responsible about how they addressed the rumors, but blind to the impact of how often. Kids knew the TCM was involved because witnesses and news anchors had said so on TV. They confirmed it with friends watching similar reports. Word spread fast. Conversation was the only teen activity in South Jeffco Tuesday afternoon. Pretty soon, most of the students had multiple independent confirmations. They believed they knew the TCM was behind the attack as a fact. From 1 to 8 p.m., the number of students in Clement Park citing the group went from almost none to nearly all. They weren't making it up. They were repeating it back. The second problem was a failure to question. In those first five hours, not a single person on the CNN feeds asked a student how they knew the killers were part of the trench coat mafia. Print reporters, talk show hosts, and the rest of the media chain repeated those mistakes. All over town, the ominous new phrase, trench coat mafia, was on everyone's lips. USA Today reported Wednesday morning. That was a fact. But who was telling whom? The writers assumed kids were informing the media. It was the other way around. Most of the myths were in place by nightfall. By then, it was a given that the killers had been targeting jocks. The target myth was the most insidious because it went straight to motive. The public believes Columbine was an act of retribution, a desperate reprisal for unspeakable jock abuse. Like the other myths, it began with a kernel of truth. In the first few hours, a shattered junior named Brie Pasquale became the marquee witness of the tragedy. She had escaped unharmed, but splattered in blood. Bree described the library horror in convincing detail. Radio and television stations replayed her testimony relentlessly. They were shooting anyone of color wearing a white hat or playing a sport, she said, and they didn't care who it was, and it was all at close range. Everyone around me got shot, and I begged him for ten minutes not to shoot me. The problem with Bree Pasquale's account is the contradiction between facts 
and conclusion. That's typical of witnesses under extreme duress. If the killers were shooting everyone, didn't that include jocks, minorities, and hat wearers? Four times in that brief statement, she described random killing, yet reporters glommed on to the anomaly in her statement. Bullying and racism? Those were known threats. Explaining it away was reassuring. By evening, the target theory was dominating most broadcasts. Nearly all the major papers featured it. The Rocky and the Washington Post refused to embrace the targeting theory all week, but they were lonely dissenters. Initially, most witnesses refuted the emerging consensus. Nearly all described the killing as random. All the papers in the wire services produced a total of just four witnesses advancing the target theory Wednesday morning, each one contradicting his or her own description. Most of the papers advanced the theory with just one student who had actually seen it. Some had zero. Reuters attributed the theory to many witnesses and USA Today to students. Student equaled witness. Witness to everything that happened that day, and anything about the killers. It was a curious leap. Reporters would not make that mistake at a car wreck. Did you see it? If not, they move on. But journalists felt like foreigners stepping into teen culture. They knew kids can hide anything from adults, but not from each other. That was the mentality. Something shocking happened here. We're baffled. But kids know. So all 2,000 were deputized as insiders. If students said targeting, that was surely it. Police detectives rejected the universal witness concept, and they relied on traumatized witnesses for observations, not conclusions. They never saw targeting as plausible. They were baffled by the media consensus. Journalists were not relying exclusively on students. The entire industry was depending on the Denver Post. The paper sent 54 reporters, 8 photographers, and 5 artists into the field. They had the most resources and the best contacts. Day one, they were hours ahead of the national pack. The first week, they were a day ahead on most developments. The Rocky Mountain News had a presence as well, but they had a smaller staff, and the national press trusted the Post. It did not single-handedly create any of the myths, but as the Post bought into one after another after another, each mistaken conclusion felt safe. The pack followed. The Jeffco Parks and Recreation District began hauling truckloads of hay bales into Clement Park. It was a mess. Thousands of people gathered at the northeast corner of the park on Wednesday, and tens of thousands appeared on Thursday and Friday. The snow had begun fluttering down Wednesday, and the foot traffic tore the field to shreds. By Thursday, it was an enormous mud pit. Nobody seemed to care much, but county workers scattered thick layers of hay in winding paths all along the makeshift memorials. They didn't know it yet. They had no idea there was a name for it, but many of the survivors had entered the early stages of post-traumatic stress disorder. Many had not. It wasn't a matter of how close they had been to witnessing or experiencing the violence. Length and severity of exposure increased their odds of mental health trouble down the road. But long-term responses were highly varied, depending on each individual. Some kids who had been in the library during the shootings would turn out fine, 
while others who had been off to Wendy's would be traumatized for years. Dr. Frank Ockberg, a professor in psychiatry at Michigan State University and a leading expert on PTSD, would be brought in by the FBI a few months later and would spend years advising mental health workers on the case. He and a group of psychiatrists had first developed the term in the 1970s. They had observed a phenomenon that was stress-induced but was qualitatively more severe and brought on by a really traumatic experience. This was something that produced truly profound effects and lasted for years or, if untreated, even a lifetime. A far milder and more common response was also underway, survivor's guilt. It began playing out almost immediately in the hallways of the six local hospitals where the injured were recovering. At St. Anthony's, the first week, the waiting rooms were packed with students coming to see Patrick Ireland. Every seat in every room was taken. Dozens of students waited in the hallways. Patrick spent the first days in ICU. Most visitors were refused, but the kids kept streaming into the hospital room anyway. They just needed to be there. You have to realize that this was part of their healing, too, Kathy Ireland said. All day, some of them stayed, and well into the evening. The staff started bringing food in once they realized some of the kids hadn't been eating. Patrick's situation looked grim. His doctors were just hoping to keep him alive. They advised John and Kathy to keep expectations low. Whatever condition they observed the first day or two would be the prognosis for the rest of his life. John and Kathy accepted this, and they saw a paralyzed boy struggling mightily to speak gibberish. The medical staff chose to not operate on Patrick's broken right foot. They cleaned out the wound and placed a brace around it. Why? his parents asked. There were more pressing concerns, they were told, and Patrick was never going to use that foot. John and Kathy were devastated, but they had to be realists. They turned their attention to raising an invalid and figuring out how to help him be happy that way. Patrick was unaware of the prognosis. It never occurred to him that he might not walk. He viewed the injury like a broken bone. You wear a cast, you build the muscle back, you pick your life up where you left off. He knew it would be tougher than the time he broke his thumb. A lot tougher. It might take three or four times as long to recover. He assumed he would recover. Patrick's friend, Mackay, was released from St. Anthony's Friday. He had been shot in the knee alongside Patrick. Reporters were invited into the hospital library for a press conference broadcast on CNN. Mackay was in a wheelchair. It turned out that he'd known Dylan. I thought he was an all right guy, Mackay said. Decent, real smart. They'd taken the same French class and worked together on school projects. He was a nice guy. Never treated me bad, Mackay said. He wasn't the kind of person he's being portrayed as. Patrick made improvement with his speech the first week, and his vitals began returning to normal. On Friday, he was moved out of the ICU and into a regular room. Once he had settled in, his parents decided it was time to ask him the burning question. Had he gone out the library window? They knew. They just had to know if he did. Did he know why he was there? Was the trauma of the truth still ahead? Well, yeah, he stammered. Were they just figuring that out? 
He was incredulous, Kathy said later. He looked at us like, how could you be so ignorant? She was okay with that. All she felt was relief. That same week, Dr. Alan Weintraub, a neurologist from Craig Hospital, came to see Patrick. Craig is one of the leading rehab centers in the world, specializing in brain and spinal cord injuries. It's located in Jeffco, not far from the Ireland's home. Dr. Weintraub examined Patrick, reviewed his charts, and gave John and Kathy his assessment. The first thing I can say to you is there's hope. They were astounded, relieved, and perplexed. Later, the discrepancy made sense to them. The staffs had different expertise and different perspectives. St. Anthony specialized in trauma. Their goal is to save lives, Kathy said. At Craig, the goal is to rebuild them. They began making arrangements to transfer Patrick to Craig. By Thursday, students in Clement Park were angry. The killers were dead. So much of the anger was deflected. Onto goths, Marilyn Manson, the TCM, or anyone who looked, dressed, or acted like the killers, or the media's portrayal of them. The killers were quickly cast as outcasts and fags. They're freaks! said an angry sophomore from the soccer team. Nobody really liked them, just cause they... He paused, then plunged ahead. The majority of them were gay, so everyone would make fun of them. Several jocks reported having seen the killers and friends touching in the hallways, groping each other, or holding hands. A football player captivated reporters with tales of group showering. The gay rumor was almost invisible in the media, but rampant in Clement Park. The stories were vague. Everything was third-hand. None of the storytellers even knew the killers. Everyone in Clement Park heard the rumors. Most of the students saw through them. They were disgusted at the jocks for defaming the killers the same way in death as they had in life. Clearly, gay was one of the worst epithets one kid could hurl against another in Jeffco. Eric and Dylan's friends generally shrugged off the stories. One of them was outraged. The media's taken my friends and made them to be gay and neo-Nazis and all these hater stuff, he said. They're portraying my friends as idiots. The angry boy was a brawny, six-foot senior dressed in camouflage pants. He ranted for several hours, and he was soon all over the national press, sometimes looking a bit ridiculous. He stopped talking. His father began screening media calls. A few papers mentioned the gay rumors in passing. Reverend Jerry Falwell described the killers as gay on Rivera Live. A notorious picketer of gay funerals issued a media alert saying, Two filthy fags slaughtered 13 people at Columbine High. Most significantly, the Drudge Report quoted Internet postings claiming that the Trenchcoat Mafia was a gay conspiracy to kill jocks. But most major media carefully sidestepped the gay rumor. The press failed to show similar deference to goths. Some of the most withering attacks were reserved for that group, a morose-acting subculture best known for powder-white face paint and black clothes, black lips, and black fingernails accented by heavy, dripping mascara. They were mistakenly associated with the killers on Tuesday by students unfamiliar with the goth concept. Equally clueless reporters amplified the rumor. One of the most egregious reports was an extended 2020 segment ABC aired just one night after the attack. 
Diane Sawyer introduced it by noting that unnamed police said the boys may have been part of a dark, underground national phenomenon known as the Gothic movement, and that some of these Goths may have killed before. It was true, Goths had killed before, as had members of every conceivable background and subculture. Correspondent Brian Ross described a double murder committed by Goths and two ghastly attempts in graphic detail. He presented them as evidence of a pattern, a goth crime wave poised to sweep through suburbia and threaten us all. The so-called gothic movement has helped fuel a new kind of teenage gang, white suburban gangs built around a fascination with the grotesque and with death, he said. He played other examples, as well as a horrifying 911 tape of a victim calling for help with a knife still protruding from his chest. Hurry, he pleaded. I'm not going to last too much longer. Ross described the killers in that case as proud, self-proclaimed members of the Gothic movement, and like the students involved in yesterday's shootings, focused on white extremism and hate. The only real problem with Ross's report were that Goths tended to be meek and pacifist. They had never been associated with violence, much less murder, and aside from long black coats, they had almost nothing in common with Eric and Dylan. Where it avoided snap conclusions, much of the reporting was first-rate. The Rocky passed on most of the myths, and it, the Post, and the Times ran excellent bios on the killers. On TV, several correspondents helped survivors convey their stories with empathy, dignity, and insight. Katie Couric was a particular standout, and several papers tried to rein in the goth scare. Whatever the two young men in Colorado might have imagined themselves to be, they weren't goths. A USA Today story began. The morose community, much too diffuse to be called a movement, is at its heart quiet, introverted, and pacifistic. Goths tend to be outcasts, not because they are violent or aggressive, but the opposite. Thursday, a young goth from a nearby school showed up in Clement Park. Andrew Mitchell was a striking sight, standing alone in a foot of snow, black on black, on white on white, jet black hair cut long on top, shaved on the sides, bare skin above his ears, a silver and blue support ribbon pinned to his black lapel. The densely packed crowd parted. A ten-foot perimeter opened up around him. Reporters rushed in. "'Why are you here?' one demanded. To pay my respects, Mitchell said. Then he offered a plea. Picture these kids for years being thrown around, treated horribly. After a while, you can't stand it anymore. They were completely wrong, but there are reasons for why they did it. Mitchell was wildly mistaken about the killers' lives and their intentions, but it was already the pervasive assumption. The massacre brought widespread tales of alienation out into the open. Salon published a fascinating piece called Misfits Who Don't Kill. It consisted of first-person accounts from rational adults who had shared similar fantasies but lived to avoid them. I remember sitting in biology class trying to figure out how much plastic explosive it might take to reduce the schoolhouse, my biggest source of fear and anxiety, to rubble, one man wrote. I scowled at those who teased me, and I have fantasies of them begging me for mercy, maybe even with a gun in their mouths. Was I a sick person? 
I don't think so. I'm sure there were thousands of other students who had the same fantasies I did. We just never acted on them. The more animosity reporters sensed, the deeper they probed. What was it like to be an outcast at Columbine? Pretty hard, most of the kids admitted. High school was rough. Most of the students in Clement Park were still speaking confessionally, and everyone had a brutal experience to share. The bullying idea began to pepper motive stories. The concept touched a national nerve, and soon the anti-bullying movement took on a force of its own. Everyone who had ever been to high school understood what a horrible problem it could be. Many believed that addressing it might be the one good thing to come out of the tragedy. All the talk of bullying and alienation provided an easy motive. Forty-eight hours after the massacre, USA Today pulled the threads together in a stunning cover story that fused the myths of jock hunting, bully revenge, and the TCM. Students are beginning to describe how a long-simmering rivalry between the sullen members of their clique, the TCM, and the school's athletes escalated and ultimately exploded in this week's deadly violence, it said. It described tension the previous spring, including daily fistfights. The details were accurate. The conclusions wrong. Most of the media followed. It was accepted as fact. There's no evidence that bullying led to murder, but considerable evidence it was a problem at Columbine High. After the tragedy, Mr. D. took a lot of flack for bullying, particularly since he insisted he was unaware it had gone on. I'm telling you, as long as I've been an administrator here, if I'm aware of a situation, then I deal with that situation, he said. And I believe our teachers, and I believe our coaches. I turned my own son in. I believe that strongly in rules. That may have been part of his downfall. Mr. D. did believe that strongly in the rules. He held his staff to the same standard and seemed to believe they would meet it. His unusual rapport with the kids also created a blind spot. It was all smiles when Mr. D. strode down the corridor. They sincerely warmed at the sight of him and sought to please him as well. Sometimes he mistook that joy for pervasive bliss in his high school. Personal affinities also obscured the problem. Mr. Dean knew he was drawn to sports. He worked hard to offset that by attending debate tournaments, drama tryouts, and art shows. He conferred regularly with the student senate, but those were all success stories. Mr. D. balanced athletics and academics better than overachievers and unders. I don't think he had a preference on purpose, a pierced-out girl in a buzz cut and red tartan boots said. He's got a lot of school spirit, and I think he aims it in the direction he's most comfortable with, like school sports and student congress. She saw DeAngelis as a sincere man, making a tremendous effort to interact with students, unaware that his natural inclination toward happy, energetic students created a blind spot for the outsiders. My goth friends hated the school, she said. The crowds in Clement Park kept growing, but the students among them dwindled. Wednesday afternoon, they poured their hearts out to reporters. Wednesday evening, they watched a grotesque portrait of their school on television. It was a charitable picture at first, but it grew steadily more sinister as the week wore on. The media grew fond of the adjective toxic, 
Apparently, Columbine was a horrible place. It was terrorized by a band of reckless jock lords and ruled by an aristocracy of snotty rich white kids in the latest Abercrombie and Fitch line. Some of that was true, which is to say, it was high school. But Columbine came to embody everything noxious about adolescence in America. A few students were happy to see some ugly truths about their high school exposed. Most were appalled. The media version was a gross caricature of how they saw it and of what they thought they had described. It made it difficult for social scientists or journalists to come to Littleton later to study the community in depth and see what was really going on. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle had played out in full force. By observing an entity, you alter it. How bad were the Columbine bullies? How horribly were the killers treated? Every scrap of testimony after day two is tainted. Heisenberg was a quantum physicist, observing electron behavior, but social scientists began applying his principle to humans. It was remarkable how similarly we behaved. During the third week of April, Littleton was observed beyond all recognition. The bright side is that a tremendous amount of data was gathered in those first few days, while students were naive, before any developed an agenda. Hundreds of journalists were in the field, and nearly as many detectives were documenting their findings in police reports. Those reports would remain sealed for 19 months. Virtually all the early news stories were infested with erroneous assumptions and comically wrong conclusions. But the data is there. 29. The Missions Two years before he hauled the bombs into the Columbine cafeteria, Eric took a crucial step. He had always maintained an active fantasy life. His extinction fantasies progressed steadily, but reality held firm and was completely separate from his fantasy life. Then, one day, midway through sophomore year, Eric began to take action. He wasn't angry, cruel, or particularly hateful. His campaign against the inferiors was comically banal, but it was real. The mischief started as a threesome. Dylan and Zack were co-conspirators and squadmates. In his written accounts, Eric referred to the two by their code names, Vodka and Kibbs. They launched the escapades in January 1997, second semester of their sophomore year. They would meet at Eric's house mostly, sneak out after midnight, and vandalize houses of kids he didn't like. Eric chose the targets, of course. They had to be careful sneaking out. They couldn't wake his parents. Lots of rocks to navigate in Eric's backyard, and a pesky neighbor's dog kept barking its falking head off, Eric wrote. Then they plunged into a field of tall grass he compared to Jurassic Park's Lost World. To Eric, it was one hell of an adventure. He had been role-playing marine heroes on military maneuvers since grade school. Finally, he was in the field conducting them. Eric dubbed his pranks The Missions. As they got underway, he ruminated about misfit geniuses in American society. He didn't like what he saw. Eric was a voracious reader, and he had just gobbled up John Steinbeck's The Pastures of Heaven, which includes a fable about the idiot savant Tularecido. 
The young boy had extraordinary gifts that allowed him to see a world his peers couldn't even imagine. Exactly how Eric was coming to view himself, though without Tularecito's mental shortcomings. Tularecito's peers failed to see his gifts and treated him badly. Tularecito struck back violently, killing one of his antagonists. He was imprisoned for life in an insane asylum. Eric did not approve. Tularecito did not deserve to be put away, he wrote in a book report. He just needed to be taught to control his anger. Society needs to treat extremely talented people like Tularecito much better. All they needed was more time, Eric argued. Gifted misfits could be taught what was right and wrong, what was acceptable to society. Love and care is the only way, he said. Love and care. Eric wrote this at the very moment he started moving against his peers. Sometimes he attacked their houses to retaliate for perceived slights, but most often for the offense of inferiority. Between missions, the boys got into unscripted trouble. Eric got mad at Brooks Brown and stopped talking to him. Then he escalated a snowball fight by breaking a chunk of ice off a drain pipe. He hurled it at the car of a friend of Brooks and dented the trunk. He grabbed another hunk and cracked the windshield of Brooks's Mercedes. Fuck you! Brooks screamed. You're going to pay for this! Eric laughed. Kiss my ass, Brooks. I ain't paying for shit. Brooks drove home and told his mom. Then he headed to Eric's. He was furious, but Kathy Harris remained calm. She invited Brooks in and gave him a seat in the living room. Brooks knew lots of Eric's secrets, and he spilled them all. Your son's been sneaking out at night, he said. He's going around vandalizing things. Kathy seemed incredulous. She tried to calm the kid down. Brooks kept ranting. He's got liquor in his room. Search it. He's got spray paint cans. Search it. She wanted him to talk, but he felt that she was acting like a school counselor. He was out of there, he said. He was getting out before Eric got back. Brooks went home and discovered his friend had grabbed Eric's backpack, taking it hostage, more or less. Brooks's mom, Judy, took control of the situation. She ordered everyone into her car and brought them to see Eric. He was still enjoying the snowball fight. Lock the doors, Judy demanded. She rolled her window down a crack and yelled over to Eric. I've got your backpack, and I'm taking it to your mom's. Meet us over there. Eric grabbed hold of the car and screamed ferociously. When she pulled away, he hung on, wailing harder. Eric reminded her of an escaped animal attacking a car at a wildlife theme park. Brooks's friend shifted to the other side of the back seat. Judy was terrified. They had never seen this side of Eric. They were used to Dylan's tirades, but he was all show. Eric looked like he meant it. Judy got up enough speed, and Eric let go. At his house, Eric's mom greeted them in the driveway. Judy handed her the backpack and unloaded the story. Kathy began to cry. Judy felt bad. Kathy had always been so sweet. Wayne came home and threw the fear of God into Eric. He interrogated him about the alcohol, but Eric had it hidden and played innocent convincingly. He wasn't taking any chances, though. As soon as he got a chance, he destroyed the stash. I had to ditch every bottle I had and lie like a fucking salesman to my parents, he wrote. That night, he went with the confessional approach. He admitted a weakness to his dad. The truth was, he was afraid of Mrs. Brown. That explained a lot, Wayne thought. 
Kathy wanted to hear more from the Browns. Wayne bitterly resented the interference. Who was this hysterical woman? Or her conniving little brat, Brooks? Wayne was hard enough on the boys without outsiders telling him how to raise his sons. Kathy called Judy that night. Judy felt she really wanted to listen, but Wayne was negative and dismissive in the background. It was kid stuff, he insisted. It was all blown way out of proportion. He got on the line and told Judy that Eric had copped to the truth. He was afraid of her. Your son isn't afraid of me, Judy said. He came after me in my car. Wayne jotted notes about the exchange on a green steno pad. He outlined Eric's misdeeds, including getting in Judy Brown's face and being a little bully. At the bottom of the page, he summarized. He found Eric guilty of aggression, disrespect, property damage, and idle threats of physical harm. But he did not look kindly on the Browns. Overreaction to minor incident, he concluded. He dated it February 28, 1997. At school the next day, Brooks heard Eric was making threats about him. He told his parents that night. They called the cops. A deputy came by to question them, then went to see the Harrises. Wayne called a few minutes later. He was bringing Eric over to apologize. Judy told Brooks and his brother Aaron to hide. I want you both in the back bedroom, she said, and don't come out. Wayne waited in the car. He refused to supply moral support. Eric had to walk up to the door and face Mr. and Mrs. Brown alone. Eric had regained his normal composure. He was exceptionally contrite. Mrs. Brown, I didn't mean any harm, he said, and you know I would never do anything to hurt Brooks. You can pull the wool over your dad's eyes, she said, but you can't pull the wool over my eyes. Eric gaped. Are you calling me a liar? Yes, I am, and if you ever come up our street, or if you ever do anything to Brooks again, I'm calling the police. Eric left in a huff. He went home and plotted revenge. He was wary now, but he wouldn't back down. The next mission target was the Browns' house. The team also hit random houses. Mostly they would set off fireworks, toilet paper the places, or trigger a house alarm. They also stuck silly putty to Brooks's Mercedes. Eric had been bragging about the missions on his website, and at this point he posted Brooks's name, address, and phone number. He encouraged readers to harass this asshole. Brooks had betrayed Eric. Brooks had to be punished, but he was never significant. Eric had bigger ideas. He was experimenting with timers now, and those offered new opportunities. Eric wired a dozen firecrackers together and attached a long fuse. He was fastidiously analytical, but he had no way to assess his data, because he fled as soon as he lit the fuses. Judy Brown viewed Eric as a criminal in bloom. She and Randy spoke to Eric's dad repeatedly. They kept calling the cops. Wayne did not appreciate that. He would do anything to protect his son's futures. Discipline was a no-brainer, but the boys' reputations were out of his control. Every kid was going to screw up now and then. The important thing was keeping it inside the family. One black mark could wipe out a lifetime of opportunities. What was the purpose of instilling discipline if one crazy family could ruin Eric's permanent record? Wayne scrutinized Eric for a while, but ultimately he bought into his son's version. Eric was smart enough to cop to some bad behavior. His calm contrition made the Browns look hysterical. 
Three days after the ice incident, Wayne was grappling with more parents and a Columbine dean. Wayne pulled out the six-by-nine-inch pad and labeled the cover, Eric. He filled three more notebook pages over two days. Brooks knew about the missions and had gone to see a dean. The dean was concerned about alcohol consumption and damage to school property. He would get the police involved if necessary. Eric played dumb. The word denial appears in large letters on two consecutive pages of Wayne's journal. Both times the word is circled, but the first entry is scribbled out. Denial of even knowledge about alcohol subject between he and me. The second entry reads, Didn't know what Dean Place was talking about. Wayne concluded that the issue was over and done, don't discuss with friends. He repeatedly stressed that silence was key. Talked to Eric, basically finished, he wrote. Leave each other alone, don't talk about it. Agreed all discussion is over with. Wayne Harris apparently breathed easier for a while. He didn't write in his journal for a month and a half. Then came four rapid entries documenting a slew of phone calls. First, Wayne talked to Zach's mom and another parent. The next day, two years and one day before the massacre, a deputy from the Jeffco Sheriff's Department called. Wayne put his guard up. We feel victimized, too, he wrote. We don't want to be accused every time something happens. Eric learned his lesson. He crossed out the last phrase and wrote, Is not at fault. The real problem was Brooks. Wayne was convinced. Brooks Brown is out to get Eric, he wrote. Brooks had problems with other boys, manipulative and con artist. If the problem continued, it might be time to hire a mediator or a lawyer. Wayne's last entry on the feud occurred a week later, on April 27th, after a call with Judy Brown. Eric hasn't broken promise to Mr. Place, the dean, about leaving each other alone, he wrote. At the bottom of the page, he repeated his earlier sentiments. We feel victimized, too, manipulative con artist. Eric totally rocked on the missions. Dylan enjoyed them, too. He liked the camaraderie, especially. He fit in there. He had a role to play. He belonged. But the missions were brief diversions. They were not making him happy. In fact, Dylan was miserable. Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy. So, we will pick up Chapter 30, Telling Us Why. The number, 605-313-5164. The code, 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate say the Klebos we feel victimized too hmm. number again six oh five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. I have heard this or read this 
heard and read this throughout our study of these events we feel victimized too and this is from the Harrises. sorry I said the Klebos, this is the Harrises. Uh, but I've heard that with the Klebos and the killers and their family at large throughout this uh, one of the ways that I heard this was after the killings in 99 apparently there were news reports that said there were 13 victims right representing the 13 people that these two white teens killed and some of the parents took offense like man there are 15 victims our children they were victims too we feel victimized too one of the other ways that I heard this or read this uh, they have whole scholarship people have written like full theses uh, and I mean like 200 pages uh, that Sue, uh, Sue Klebo she too Wayne uh, Miss Harris I was going to say Kathy but that's the other oh it is Kathy I got it right yeah yeah Wayne and Kathy Harris they're victims in all this too okay uh, okay email is untiljustice at gmail.com uh, let's see I'll get in one email and then we'll get to folks who dialed in let's see alright one email person writes in dear Mr. Renegade last week you posed the question of whether the grave of the Columbine killers uh, would become a shrine contrary to the statement made by Sue Klebo I believe it would become a shrine but I would like to point out that immediately after the shooting a white man Greg Zanes erected 15 eight-foot crosses in Clement Park honoring all those who died at Columbine School this memorial included a cross for both killers Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris like I just knew he was going to talk about this there was outrage amongst whites in Jefferson County about the killers inclusion in this memorial logical Brian hmm, Rorbo I'm going to say Rorbo I'll say it that way R-O-H R-B-O-U-G-H Rorbo I'm ignorant still learning uh, the father of one of the victims Danny Rorbo tore down the crosses dedicated to Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris the Denver Post quoted Mr. Rorbo bro, come on, Rorbo who said it wasn't appropriate to honor the shooters in the same place as the victims logical why are the shooters being honored at all I think the community of whites would accept a grave marker in a cemetery for each of the killers and not destroy it, but something apart from that might evoke a a reaction similar to the one shown by Mr. Rorbo. White people were killed after all. One thing that has stood out is the police incompetence and or reluctance to adequately perform their jobs and the recognition by others of this fact. On page 80 of the ebook, Mr. Cullen says, 
command had fallen to the newly elected Jeffco Sheriff John Stone. He had not faced a murder case in office. The Metro cops were horrified to discover that the county was in charge. Many were open with their disgust. City and even suburban officers thought the sheriff's deputies thought of them as security guards. The poor performance was demonstrated by the sheriff at the press conference who wanted to seem in charge by answering all the questions even though even those not directed at him. During the conference he provided a great deal of incorrect information. Epoch pages 106 to 107. Then there is the poor response by the SWAT team, not entering the building sooner and neutralizing the killers or rescuing victims, including teacher Dave Sanders. The sheriff's department also lied about when the SWAT team entered the building, saying they entered the school 20 minutes after the first call went in. It was actually 47 minutes after the call when they entered. This was from last week. Mr. Cullen includes an assessment given by a veteran suburban cop to the Rocky Mountain News and the Denver Post who stated the SWAT team's response was pathetic. Furthermore, he said, it pissed me off. I'd have someone in there. We were trained to do that. We were trained to go in there. Ebook page 164. What is interesting is that this man who is a police officer in another jurisdiction was removed from duty after making these comments but was reinstated after a backlash from the community no snitching for sure and police departments even beyond a thin blue line they have sometimes they'll have a code where you are not supposed to talk they have one uh, point of access one person who is appointed to talk to the press sometimes that's that person's whole job you talk to the press you are the point of contact nobody else is supposed to say a mumbling word he continues it makes me wonder if the Sanders family were encouraged or maybe even pressured to show their support for the sheriff's department by inviting them to Dave Sanders' funeral. Hmm. I don't know. Something to think. It would seem they would have bigger things to worry about than PR at this point, but who knows? Uh, much obliged for the commentary. We'll include the other folks. I can only say with the police response, now, I mean, again, we started today's broadcast with uh, Uvalde and I didn't even play the audio when I could have I'm telling you jury selection started yesterday the coward of Broward Scott Peterson Scott with one T not the same Scott Peterson uh, but his trial jury selection started yesterday for the same thing Parkland white man with a gun Ooh, you shooting me like all that come on come on that's one thing i am right there with you sir that stands out so clean minister malcolm x said this years ago white people are cowards dr gerald horn in fact in the clip that i love where he was talking about the molestation and rape of black boys setting that clip up he said hey the enterprise of white supremacy racism is a cowardly act and you see this replayed over and over and over he just said that the bitter sweet science we talked about that in depth reading this book and you keep seeing this over and over and over when it's me when it's Jamal white people get excited when it's Tamir Rice you get excited Ooh, we get a chance to run in and shoot an 11 year old Ooh, an unarmed 11 year old but when you got white children 
being shot down. I see this over and over again. And you got white people. This is your job. You trained for this. Now you got 20 years from Columbine. So you know what it is. They got articles that came out in the nation almost 25 years ago because of Columbine. It's titled Shoot to Kill. That's how police officers have been trained for 25 years because of rebel and vodka. So to have this continue to happen and even it took me a second to even think what happened at Columbine in and of itself is a cowardly and you mean honor? How much should we honor two white boys who take a year to go in with all their weapons of war and shoot some people in the face who got a number two pencil? That is the essence. You all are cowards. At least go shoot up the police station. Make it even. And to see this become this is a piece of white culture. We just heard that Sunday guest. Nobody does this but white people. Brag about that. This is the way I'm going to be famous to go out and do a cowardly act. And then the very people who now you've trained for a quarter century, you know what to do immediately. Stop the threat. That's why you got a gun. Great equalizer. That's why you got that badge. Or is it? You just want to be a race shoulder and go around and put the chokehold on me and Leroy and Jamal, Breonna Taylor. That's what you want to do when it's time to save children. Now, you you want to the coward of Broward. You have to look that up on your own time. We'll see if we get that in as we proceed. Get to the folks who dialed in 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Incidentally, I will tell you, one of the listeners, they sent me a link to one of those Columbine forms. I bet there are bunches of them, but I just started research. What are they talking about? They have all the resources. If you want to check out documentaries, go there. <laughs> if you, anything you're interested, book reviews, go there. I thought I was cool. I had the one hour news clip of live reporting on Columbine from April 20, 1999. They had the six hour video clip of the news footage of Columbine in that first 24 hours. I start watching it. Literally, I heard one of the students say, oh my God, they were in the trench coat mafia and they were bisexual. And I mean, they were proud bisexual. They just bragged about it. Let everybody know and made everyone uncomfortable. And <laughs> I went so like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Like what is what is way to time out time out like whoa I have never heard this what are you talking what so then to see that in the book woo woo there were a couple moments where I had to pause well but that was definitely one so then to read and see that that was kind of happening over the first couple of days like wow don't know what to say about that uh, let's see folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, let's see. If you have commentary, proceed. Let's see. May I be heard? Yes, Lauren, you are with us. 
Thank you, sir, for allowing me to speak. Uh, I just started cracking up when you were talking about the bisexual thing. I actually felt kind of weird at the beginning of the book when I thought that maybe Dylan and Eric were gay because I thought maybe I was just like reading too much into it, the way they park next to each other and <laughs> the way they, I don't know, it seems like, uh, you know, Eric was the guy and Dylan the uh, girl. Um, but anyway, so I, it's a little weird about thinking that um, at the beginning of the book. But in the text, it says Eric Dutro, um, his mom got him a black trench coat. And then, so it says Eric Dutro, Chris Morris, and a handful of other boys were pretty much the core of the TCM, but a dozen more were often associated with the TCM as well whether they sported trench coats or not. Eric and Dylan were not among them. Each of them knew some of the trench coat mafia kids, and Eric especially would become buddies with Chris. So the first guy who gets the trench coat, him and Eric are buddies. And he says that was as close as they came. Eventually, after the TCM heyday was over, also, I don't understand how you decide the heyday is over, Eric got himself a trench coat. Dylan followed, again, uh, Dylan doing what Eric uh, says or does. Um, they wore them to the massacre. The choice would cause tremendous confusion. Now, that could be accurate about, you know, the choice causing tremendous confusion, but I really, I'm kind of... So I'm getting this weird vibe as I'm this um, session. It it kind of uh, it's reading like Jeffrey Tubin's writing and the run of his life. Uh, I don't know, but I'm getting that vibe. I don't understand. Um, Eric Harris and Dylan Cleveland both had the trench coats, and he's already said that people who didn't even have trench coats were in the trench coat mafia, but these two people who had trench coats and were in, according to his text, buddies with the original trench coat guy somehow were not supposed to be associated with the trench coat mafia. I don't really get that part. Now, I do get that the trench coats, yeah, you know, it would be feasible to wear those to cover up those weapons. I think it was, they were just, it's possible they were dual purpose. Um, and then later on in the, in the text, it said the lesser myths are equally unsupported. No connection to Marilyn Manson, Hitler's birthday, minorities, or Christians. Hmm. Well, it was indeed Hitler's birthday. Um, according to the Internet, he was born April 20th, 1889. So he would have been 110 years old on the day um, Eric, Eric and uh, Dylan did the massacre. So, yeah, that is a connection, and I don't know how you can discount that. Um, I, I would like to know what Dave Cullen's definition of a minority is. Um, I don't know, because I think white people are, you know, a numerical minority. It killed a lot of white people, so mm, whatever. And I've never even heard anything about Christians. Uh, I'm not sure what he's talking about. I, I think I've been paying attention so far. Um, other than, you know, it said they had these funerals and they called some of the people um, evangelicals and some of the people, oh, I forget what they call the black people, but 
they might not have even called them anything, but I hadn't heard anything like they were, you know, seeking out Christians. So I'm not really sure what he was talking about. And Eric did seem to like German stuff. And he liked to say how Hitler, right in Chapter 4, it said Eric was in all his German shit lately. Nietzsche, Freud, Hitler, German industrial bands, German language t-shirts. Sometimes he punctuated his high five with Sig Heil or how Hitler. So I really don't understand why he's acting like there's no connection to Hitler's birthday when that's really obvious and this guy um, really like German stuff. Um, next point, um, there was a part, it, it said, uh, Patrick's friend Mackay was in a wheelchair. It turned out he'd known Dylan. I thought he was an all right guy, Mackay said. Decent? Hmm. This real sad? Oh, he said, he was a nice guy. Never treated me bad. He wasn't the kind of person he's being portrayed as. Uh, but this person is in a wheelchair because he got shot. So never treated me bad. You know, I guess I need to know what has to be done to him um, for it to be classified as bad treatment, whatever that is. But I don't think I'd like it too much if somebody shot me. So I'll just say that. Um, the killers were quickly cast as outcasts or fags. I don't remember this happening. Um, so that was a quote. It was also another quote. It says, they're freaks, said an angry sophomore from the soccer team. Nobody really liked them just because they, and he paused. Then he said the majority of them were gay, so everyone would make fun of them. Now, I don't know if he was just talking about the trench coat mafia when he said that or Eric Harris and Dylan Clebo, but that was interesting. And it also seemed like he was hesitant to say it. Um, so, yeah, that really makes me wonder. It also says several jocks reported having seen the killers and friends touching in the hallways, groping each other or holding hands. A football player captivated reported uh captivated reporters with tales of group showering. And I don't know about the group showering part because if you take a shower after gym class, that's the group showering, I think. But I don't understand what exactly makes these accounts um inaccurate or dismissible. Um did the authors say that they were somehow inaccurate? Like He's not saying it, but the, the way he's writing it is to make the reader think that these reports, these things that these children, these students are saying about the killers and the people they hung out with are inaccurate. But the author, he doesn't actually say it's inaccurate. He just gives you a feeling. So it's, it's kind of it's slick to me, you know. Um, again, that that's kind of gives me the Jeffrey Tubin vibes. And then it says, clearly gay was one of the worst epithets one kid could hurl against another in Jeffco. Um, I don't know if that's accurate. What about murderer or racist? Like, are those epithets worse than gay? Because, I mean, I think they are, but, you know, I'm not an expert on anything. Um, there was another part. It said, the media's taking my friends and made them to be gay and neo-Nazis and all these hater stuff. Now, that's a weird quote. I don't know exactly why he said it like that, but I guess they could have been gay. 
And he did seem to like Hitler and German stuff. So if that's hater stuff, then yeah. Um, and then he said, they're portraying my friends as idiots. I don't recall many people saying or even inferring that Eric and Dylan were somehow ignorant or idiotic. They seem to be pretty well informed to me. And then there was chapter 23. It was titled Gifted Boy. And it was all about how smart these um, two people were. <laughs> the part where they were having a snowball fight and Eric Harris threw a chunk of ice at the trunk of Brooks's uh, car and then threw another one and cracked the windshield and then Brooks got pissed, you know, goes to his mom and then goes to Eric Harris's house. <laughs> that right there, man, he told yeah, because I've been questioning, hey, is it possible Eric Harris, Eric Harris's parents didn't know what kind of person he was? It's possible, um, but I think it's very unlikely. Um, but, you know, he told them, your son has been sneaking out at night. He's got liquor in his room, all kinds of stuff, you know. And that lady just disregarded it. And um, when the dad, when um, Eric Harris's father brings him over to Brooks's house later on, Judy, when she sees who's outside, she sends her children to the back room to hide, tells them to get in the back bedroom and don't come out. Now, Miss Judy saw the kind of person that Eric was, and she said, you're not pulling the wool over my eyes. Um, I guess she has not read... Um, the word guys, or maybe she's not familiar with Mr. Fuller, or she could just be a person who practices uh, racism and white supremacy. I don't know, but Eric Harris didn't seem like he fooled her. Um, and the dad, Eric Harris's dad said, one black mark could wipe out a lifetime of opportunity. I, I guess that's kind of what it means to get the black classification. You just miss out on a lifetime of opportunities, man. It is hard to be a Negro. And that's all I have for now. Thank you. I know what that's like. Miss out on a lifetime of opportunities. You didn't get to grow up with the BMW and the Mercedes and psychology class. Like, oh, mm, mm, mm. didn't get to leave high school and go eat lunch off campus hopping my bmw and i don't know going to dairy queen jack in the box i don't know what a burger what we gonna do (sighs) missed out on a lifetime of opportunities being negro uh before we nab our other callers great point the comparison between old jeff tubin run of his life one of i think that best job as a facilitator or rental James uh, other folks compared this one as well to uh, Catherine Pellinero absolute madness reading that one this time last year uh, I, in addition to that news clip which was in the first 24 hours of a student talking about the bisexual and proud trench coat mafia there was also a white female student, a freshman. She was so composed. Like, I wonder what she's doing now. They talked to her morning of the 21st. And they asked her about the trench coat mafia connection. And she said, I mean, she was precise. She said, 
there is a trench coat mafia, I don't think Eric and Harris were a part of it. They did wear trench, trench coats from time to time, as did other students who were not necessarily in the trench coat mafia. But yes, I did see them wear trench coats at school. I was that was another moment. It's like wow, that is because this is within the first twenty four hours to what now even now most people say they're in the trench coat mafia where the FBI report, like the official Denver police report, no, they were not. No evidence to support that, and at least one witness that I have seen news report from within hours said exactly what they said. They wore the trench coats, but they were not in the group. Uh, let's see. The great point about the idiots, because I exactly I have heard every white person affiliated with these events described as intelligent, like they have a little colony of geniuses out there in the Littleton, Denver area. Uh, and I cannot forget, man, our timing is out of this world. We are reading this here book. At this moment, even at this day, the Denver Nuggets in the finals for the first time. And we started this same season reading Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf's biography about his time with the Denver Nuggets. Amazing. Anyway, they had so many articles about the finals while I was going and reading old Denver Post and Rocky Mountain News articles. The finals, the finals. Oh, yes, the finals. Yes, 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 yes. Some things are more important than basketball. I have to go back and see what the Nuggets did to honor Columbine during that season. Any hoodles. Uh, let's see. Oh, in the planning, I did want to say something about that. The planning date. Uh, we already did cover that one. Apparently, this was planned for the 19th. That's one in terms of it being on Hitler's birthday. Get my old finals analogy. It's like LeBron James block at the finals. He blocked it, but he had it on both sides. This is one. You know enough information. You too can be LeBron James. You get it on both sides. So, hey, they originally planned this for April 19. Well, hey, Timothy McVeigh, which they talked about directly. They were competing with him. We already read that. They said they wanted to. We're on top of this is numbers. We put notches on a. We're going to way top him. We're going to kill everybody at school. 500 of them. Who was reading Turner Diaries, White Supremacy through and through buffalo proud timothy mcveigh so, i mean you got it through and through and he was influenced by all the white supremacy and hitler and all that so you got it both ways it just happened that they moved it to the 20th which lines up beautifully because they were into hitler which he already covered so really the only thing that they can we can concede like okay this was not originally planned for the 20th hitler's birthday it was for timothy mcveigh Okay, see, we're going to top him. Turner Diaries and all that. So we got it both ways. No problem. Um, The author, someone pointed this out a while ago. I'm so glad they pointed it out in advance. The author, Dave Cullen, is classified as gay. That might be something, I guess, to keep in mind. Like, it really came up big time in this week's first portion of the reading. That said, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary... Proceed.
we got a few points I would like to make. Yes, ma'am, we can hear you. If you could speak up a tad, I just that would be to awesome. I wanted to say something about the, um, the victims, victims and um, that they were, um, the victims were all honored. And then how, I wonder how would the people that actually did the killings be victims um, since they were the victimizers? But I remember um, somebody, I don't know about that. I want to say it was uh, Malcolm X that said that's what white people do. They'll, they'll, they'll be the victims and the victimizers. It's just, it's crazy. And I wanted to make a point about the, um, one of them were reading some book that was saying something about an idiot savant was in the book they were reading about. And they were saying that, you know, um, those people are just misunderstood. Um, and he, he was just like the character in the book. Um, besides being an idiot savant, which I, I'm, I don't know, I could be wrong, but I think that's like maybe a mentally challenged person. And I'd argue that if you're sitting up there fantasizing about killing people at your school, that that's not correct thinking. That would be considered a mental mentally challenged brain to me if that's what you're fantasizing about. And with them um, doing whatever they did when they were doing their pranks and everything, and, and the lady was scared, and she was telling the people to go, you know, telling the children go in the back room and, and lock the door and, and put the padlocks on and put the earmuffs over your ear so you don't hear anything or whatever. I think they them doing that, instead of white people saying, okay, um, these are behaviors that can lead to somebody doing something like, you know, shooting up there a lot of people in their class and the only reason why they resorted to shooting me was because the bombs didn't go off. I think they would say that all those pranks or whatever they were doing would be con, um, considered like boys being boys, how they always say, oh, you know, um, we did something, we taped somebody up, we taped somebody to the um, locker at school and for them to get down, they had to take the tape off and some of the tape took some of the victim's skin off, you know, the child that they taped to the locker. And don't worry about it because it's just boys being boys instead of them saying we need to take these behaviors and keep an eye on them because they might be turning into killers because of what they're doing right now, doing some crazy pranks. But that, again, um, you know, if that was – that, that um, stuff like that happens, and it makes me think of that's how racism, white supremacy is practiced when there are no non-white people around where they'll sit there and say stuff like that. Oh, that's just, you know, they're being, they're being young kids. They're being young, and they just are not thinking when – Knowing good and well, if it was some young black people doing stuff like that, they would have had, if they wouldn't have threw them in jail right then, they would have had a tag on them and they would have been, you know, all the time looking and waiting and, oh, are they going to do some more criminal activity because they did something when they were 15. That's all I got to say. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. I just, to your point, I just want to include this right here. We just had. Dr. Uh, Angeline Spalding Flowers as a guest on our program on Sunday, one of the few black people to have written a book on this subject matter. She said, for whatever reason, black people are not very interested in it. White people problems, maybe? Uh, Isaiah Shoals, I don't know. Mm. 
uh, we have anyway uh, from her book 20 years of school based mass shootings in the U.S. Columbine to Santa Fe page 127 this is the conclusion in looking at perpetrators it is important to shift the focus from perceiving shooters as mentally ill to recognizing that social and environmental factors can contribute to poor mental health stress anxiety or emotional distress these are not mental illnesses a very small minority may suffer from severe mental illnesses but that is the exception rather than the norm the continued association of mass shootings with the thought that the perpetrator must be mentally ill enables avoidance of the fact that the shooters do not look like how criminals are expected to look black mark therefore there has to be an explanation for their behavior until it is accepted that most school shooters are white males in relatively affluent suburban and rural communities it will be impossible to direct intervention and prevention efforts in the right direction the missed opportunities for intervention like in this case will continue a two-fold approach is needed remove guns from the hands of white children not gonna happen and increase support services in schools to address the needs of all students that's not gonna happen either because you have an increasing population of non white students I don't think you're gonna have white people excited to support all students if more and more of them are not white but I thought this was so important I even switched up the color of my highlighter on this one uh, let's see uh, other folks who dialed in with commentary proceed Can I be heard? Z's mommy, yes, ma'am. Okay, uh, greetings, everyone. Um, so that passage you read was very, very interesting, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone discuss um, school shooters in that way. It makes you really think um, the very useful perspective um, non-white people can have on this because. It seems the dominant narrative is just that they are mentally ill. Like, if you um, read Sue Klebold's book, she, like, posts, like, at, after he's dead, she diagnoses him with all of these mental disorders that he didn't, was not diagnosed with when he was alive, which I think is really interesting and goes to what um, the author, or the writer in um, I forgot her name, my apologies, but that you were reading right now was saying about essentially making excuses for um, these killers because they don't have the, they don't match the forced idea of criminality that is, you know, a black person essentially. So I think that's really interesting. Um, a part of the reading that I thought was really interesting was I think when they were saying how 
slowly as the day started going on, everyone started to repeat the whole trench coat mafia idea. It's so interesting because he said, like, it was just the power of repetition. It really makes you think about the system in general and how it can cause people literally to just be under a form of, like, mind control where whatever was their actual thought process, as if you just repeat it enough, it's like the kids are just going to be repeating what they're hearing the media say, and they're going to think that that's their true memory, which I just think is really, really interesting. It makes you think a lot about the system and how that affects non-white people, because a lot of times we repeat what white people say, and then it becomes what we think is our actual memory or what we think is actually true versus us just repeating what we're constantly being heard through, what we're constantly hearing through the media, et cetera. So I thought that was really interesting. And um, I thought it was interesting what um, Lauren was talking about, the trench coat mafia and how they, like, they're saying that, oh, Eric was close to one of the people in the trench coat mafia, but that, but somehow they're not in the trench coat mafia. Uh, the person that they were talking about, too, that Chris person, he was actually, I think he was, there was a Chris Morris who was a part of the trench coat mafia. I was reading an article while you were talking, and he actually got arrested during the massacre, like as it was happening, or I guess towards the end of it, because people were saying that, oh, that's their friend. He probably knows something, or he's probably involved. So I think that's really interesting. Um, another thing that I wanted to bring up was that Dave Cullen says, um, he said, well, he was talking about, like Lauren was saying about calling, basically I think he's implying that non-white people are minorities, and he was saying that um, there was an idea that, you know, the shooting or the massacre was about bullies or about an attack about religion or minorities. Um, and then he said that none of the victims, or like, like people who were actually involved don't believe that, including like the victims' families. And that's not true because Isaiah Schultz's mom says that, you know, she thinks that it was an attack, like a race, a racially motivated attack. So I thought that was interesting. Um, that's all I have to say for now. Thank you. Indeed, Isaiah Show. Oh, did you hear? Uh, we got our correction uh, previously. Lauren uh, Sleuth, she contacted Dave Cullen, and he said that the shows were being comforted previously by the parents. We got that confirmation. So, did you hear that part? I don't know if she's muted. Maybe she's muted or no. Maybe she's muted. Anyway, hopefully she heard that. Anywho, much obliged, Z's mom. Um, let's see. Other folks, Star Six One, if you have commentary that you want to make sure that you get in. Let's. Oh, with the uh, religious attack or Christians being uh, attacked allegedly. Uh, that that being a part of it, I I am a tad confused because there's going to be more detail on this coming forward. I have to just flip back to make sure that I read that in this book. But uh, did we cover Misty Bernal? She's one of the blonde white women, uh, white students. Uh, she was killed in the attack where they asked if she believed in God. Did we read that? yet or no 
Does that sound familiar to you all? If it doesn't, that's fine too. But I'm. Just, uh, are you talking about Cassie Bernal? Yes, that's it. Thank you. The mom is Misty Cassie Bernal. Okay. That her name has came up, but I don't think that part has happened yet. Okay. All right. My fault for spoilers. My fault for spoilers. Okay. Um, that is the religious aspect. Um, and that does, uh, that one is big. Like, underline that. That's coming up. My bad for getting it. That's why I said I was confused. Like, did I read that in this one? Or is that, like, my bad for getting ahead? Okay. Um, so, down the road, just from put a pen in the religion part of that. We'll get back to that. Same thing with Isaiah Shoals or with the so-called minorities, because I think he's using that to mean non-white people, particularly with their, you know, mighty 1% numbers at Columbine. Students classified as black put a pin in that as well, uh, that this was not about so-called minorities. Uh, I do think the big point, the failed bond, Timothy McVeigh, that's why I have no problem. Let's pull it back, remind him. Yes, this was supposed to be on the 19th of April, which would have been four years from the date, Timothy McVeigh, OKC bombing, who they talked about explicitly, we're going to top him. That's nothing. Number fate tip. They're going to double that, triple that. Ah, take the whole school down. Everybody, like, everybody that's what i mean about it not discriminate plus that's another one i think that not being widely understood even to this day people just you know this is a school shooting and dr fowler flowers excuse me dr flowers she points that out in her book this was a failed bombing that's how we should process this not you know oh they just want you to vamp that was just oh, our messed up backup plan any hoodles. Let's see. Back up, get to the beginning of this week, and then we'll get to second audio segment. Media crime. That's so interesting. All right, so he's got the segment Black Chapter 27. I didn't know if this is where he was going to get into Isaiah Shoals or what. He Then he, he shifted and, and put it off uh, with the clothing. I even paused Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. I'm so hoping to find the audio where Dr. Welsing, the Welsing Institute audio for May of 1999 and even June of 1999 to see what Dr. Welsing said about all of this. Uh, did she mention Isaiah Shoals? Like just uh, the great equalizer. I'm hopeful. I'm, uh, I'm hopeful. If anybody can get access uh, May 99, June 99, what did Dr. Welsing have to say at the Welsing Institute about this event? Inquiring minds would love to know. But John R. Harvey, white man, he wrote the book uh, Men in Black. He was a guest on the cows in 2009, 14 years. And he has a passage. This is on page 246 of the book. He writes, this is not to suggest that street black, the youth subculture use of black is necessarily fascistic, hell's angelic or street dangerous. The black leather jacket as the anti uniform of rebels, rebels without causes is associated not only with Brando, but also with James Dean in essence 
or in myth, the non-violent, non-dangerous, tragic rebel soul. There may also be a play with respectable black, the mods who in the 60s wore when riding their lambrettas without their parkas, sharp black suits. Girl mods were black and white, were assertively making a play use of the middle class, decent black of the black suit that goes back to the arrived Victorians. They were showing a confidence in being with it and in having made it to that degree that they could at the weekend at least be at least a style elite. And it goes that he even before that has lots about black being the Nazi uniform and all this other but black the symbolism uh, of them wearing that these trench coats and all the right even how some of the other folks who were not associated with this them wearing black and oh turning heads and talked about all that before let's see uh eric had concentrated on assimilation demo dylan had sought the same goal with less success even that term just stood out to me it seems that those of us denied opportunities uh we constantly seek assimilation so we can get those opportunities and just don't quite seem to you know we're we're even further down than dylan uh, says uh, sophomore year Eric he wanted an edgier look I don't quite know what that means combat boots all black outfits and grunge I'm in Seattle so they used to say that quite a bit in these parts uh, he continues man there is a white person who has written many books about school shootings and he talks about this where Eric Harris describes himself on one of these I guess the early version of Tinder the primitive style uh, as being skinny and 140 pounds and underweight and all this, and he uh, he describes himself as a freaking runt. Uh, he has this as being one of the characteristics of these white school shooter. Think Adam Lanza. People who've seen him, he's also would be described as kind of small, maybe even puny, especially for his age. Uh, he, the, 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 the transgender shooter at Audrey Hale just goes on and on and on. He said where they are underweight, undersized, that might even be a, a part of the sense that they were bullied or didn't fit in or whatever. Uh, let's see. He talked about even Eric Harris had the uh, chest deformity as well. Uh, he says the their friends respected one another and ridiculed the conformity of the vanilla wafers looking down on them. They had no desire to emulate the jocks vanilla wafers like that's such a hmm how interesting they say but they'll use that term too to say vanilla if you are just you don't have any diversity to your choices of dress or to what you say just your wardrobe is very vanilla you just wear the same old kind of boring humdrum clothes no splash of style or color that <laughs> sort of thing uh let's see Dracula. We talked about that. They got whole book, white culture, blood, violence, killing, white culture. Uh, let's see. Chapter 28, media confusion. Uh, the Hitler's birthday, like I said, and you can have that because the Hitler is all through the journal, which he covers. I believe that's in the e-version of the book, maybe the paper version too, but that's there. You got that both ways. Like, fine, 
they weren't going to do it on his birthday, no problem. But Eric was fascinated, right? They were doing all those uh, Heil Hitler and all the rest of it. We got three Hitler counts uh, so far. In the, oh, this is four. That's another one. That's four. Uh, but that that was all in the in the journal and what have you that he was saying. And I, Dave Cutlin has acknowledged that. So. No, it would do that. I don't know about the Marilyn Manson. I'd have to go to see, you know. And oh my God, pause right there. Pause right there. The white man, same white man who has written about school shootings, Columbine specifically, Elliot Roger, uh, who talked about this trend of them being undersized and maybe having some uh, self confidence issues about their size, weight, all the rest of it. He also noted. Eric Harris was fascinated with Adolf Hitler and Charles Manson. Charles Manson is not mentioned in this book at all. I was stymied. I don't know if I should be, but I mean, are you serious? <laughs> like what? The Charles? I mean, even for 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 brownie points, excuse the metaphor, but I mean, everybody loved Charles Manson, the dude before Jeff Dahmer. How are you gonna leave that out? He tried to spark a race war. How are you going to leave that out? Come on, D. Cullen. That would be two from my question list. But yeah, like, yeah, you would have to dig on that. So is Gus Langeless? Is that in the in the journal? What did he say about Charles Manson? If you don't know who Charles Manson is, reading is more important than watching television. He's come up on the program before. Geronimo Pratt reading uh, the Catherine Massey book club and all. I already made my comments about the news clip where they said the the trench coat mafia being bisexual. And in 1999, they got on TV and said that like, whoo, wacky. Let's see. They got the Jerry Falwell mentioned in there. Shout out to V.A. Coon Man. He put the chains on the doors to keep the niggers out of his church way back when. That's, you know, ancient times. Uh, Let's see. Mm. We got all the detail about uh, Patrick and his is he was one of the seeing him go out of the window and all that people focused on that quite a bit. Let's see. Mm-mm-mm. Oh my God. Okay, so they got uh, Patrick's friend friend Makai. I have to see images to see if this is a non-white person or not. Uh, he had been shot. He had been shot in the knee alongside Patrick. Reporters were invited into the hospital library for a press conference broadcast on CNN. Makai was in a wheelchair. I bet they got this press conference on one of those uh, forums. It turned out that he'd known Dylan. I thought he was an all right guy, Makai said. Decent, real smart. See, they couldn't do They don't just say, uh, they mediocre students. <laughs> like, before talking about an idiot, like, what? What? Everybody's super smart genius oh and all the advanced class like oh these smartest chaps ever they'd taken the same French class worked together on school project he was a nice guy never treated me bad he wasn't the kind of person he's being portrayed as man man (laughs) you would have a hard time the day after Rental James was acquitted if we want to stay same decade uh, you would have a hard time getting folks to come out publicly and make such a statement about a rental James. And he was acquitted. Man, they were nice, but let's see. Mm-mm-mm. By Thursday, students in Clement Park were angry. The killers were dead. So much of the anger was deflected onto 
the Goths, Marilyn Manson, the trench coat mafia, anyone who looked, dressed, or act like the killers. Now I thought this was important because I thought he was going to say the anger was directed at the Klebos, the Harrises, you dirty rotten skunks. Why don't you look after your children? This is what I say about you. No-count parents. Why don't you know, have Judy Brown on their lawn picketing? I told you about that no-counter. I told you he was a criminal. You want to go pull the wool over my eyes? I told you. If you're listening to me, this going to happen. No, no, no. That's not what he said. I thought they said that Sue Klebo, they said their attorney told them, your children are dead. People are looking for someone to hate, so they're going to hate you. That's what I thought he was going to say, and that's not what he said. That's what I said, like me said that before. Like, man, are you serious? Sue Klebo has more documentaries than anybody in the world. She talked to Diane Sawyer. She talked to the BBC. She did a documentary by herself in 2016. I'm sure Netflix is going to holler at her. Like, they're boundless. They just go on and on. She did a TED Talk. I forgot. It just goes on and on. And the book. And she did about 15 billion interviews for the book. She did an interview on Oprah, her magazine, O Magazine. I said, now, for real, for real, for real, for real, for real, Harpo. As of then, and, and she writes about mental illness. I didn't know. <laughs> white tears, white tears. I didn't know mental illness. Who at, who at Harpo's staff? Yes more weeping white women I know that's been like the target audience for years but like for reals for real Sue Klebold <sighs> the killers were quickly outcast as outcasts and fags now, I didn't hear anybody call them fags uh, I have to keep scouring for that one even the outcasts now buddy at this distance no they are not outcasts at all all they are superheroes worshipped around the world matter of fact the goofy website that I went on I could have had two clips to play I went there the first time and they mentioned a totally different Columbine or white person who worships all this and then they went out and did the same thing went up shot up the high school and they got him and said oh you know mm, I I, ooh, I I feel some type of way at times, you know, we, we sit on here and we got this whole site delegated to old, dedicated to old rebel and, and vodka. And, you know, it make it seem like they're just, they're just heroes. It's almost like a shrine. It's almost like, it's almost like we, we're encouraging because the way they wrote it, they said another one of our members did it again. So this isn't the first time one of you all on here, old rebel and Eric, old rebel and Dylan, I'm sorry. Oh, Oh, I just miss them so. I'm an outcast too. They pick on me too. I was bullied too. Oh, I empathize with my white brothers. Oh, and then they go out and do the same thing. Columbiners, that's what they call that. Columbiners. That's white coach. That's why I said Charles Manson. That's why he has groupies. Jeff Dahmer. That's why they got the Netflix special. That's white culture. And at its essence, cowardly it is so cow that's I feel bad so I'm gonna go shoot up the school I'm gonna go shoot up the 12 and 14 year olds and what <clears throat> white people don't care about children <clears throat> now we can get to section two you did not get to share write it down we will have ample time once we finish Catherine Massey book club 
context of white supremacy, Dave Cullen. How are you going to write a book and leave out Charles Manson? What editor? Anybody in the world? He's one of the most popular white people ever. He's connected this and you leave him out? Jesus Christ. Same name. Context of White Supremacy, audio segment two. 30. Telling us why. Jeff Goh had a problem. Before Eric and Dylan shot themselves, officers had discovered files on the boys. The cops had 12 pages from Eric's website spewing hate and threatening to kill. For detectives, a written confession, discovered before the killers were captured, was a big break. It certainly simplified the search warrant. But for commanders, a public confession, which they had sat on since 1997, that could be a PR disaster. The web pages had come from Randy and Judy Brown. They had warned the sheriff's department repeatedly about Eric for more than a year and a half. Sometime around noon, April 20th, the file was shuttled to the command center in a trailer set up in Clement Park. Jeffco officials quoted Eric's site extensively in the search warrants executed that afternoon, but then denied ever seeing it. They would spend several years repeating those denials. They suppressed the damning warrants as well. Then Sheriff Stone fingered Brooks as a suspect on the Today Show. It was a rough time for the Brown family. The public got two conflicting stories. Randy and Judy Brown had either labored to prevent Columbine or raised one of its conspirators, or both. To the Browns, it looked like retribution. Yes, their son had been close to the killers, close enough to see it coming. The Browns had blown the whistle on Eric Harris over a year earlier, and the cops had done nothing. After Eric went through with his threats, the Browns were fingered as accomplices instead of heroes. They couldn't believe it. They told the New York Times they had contacted the sheriff's department about Eric 15 times. Jeffco officials would insist for years that the Browns never met with an investigator, despite holding a report indicating they had. The officers knew they had a problem, and it was much worse than the Browns realized. Thirteen months before the massacre, sheriff's investigators John Hicks and Mike Guerra had investigated one of the Browns' complaints. They discovered substantial evidence that Eric was building pipe bombs. Guerra had considered it serious enough to draft an affidavit for a search warrant against the Harris home. For some reason, the warrant was never taken before a judge. Guerra's affidavit was convincing. It spelled out all the key components, motive, means, and opportunity. A few days after the massacre, about a dozen local officials slipped away from the feds and gathered clandestinely in an innocuous office in the county Open Space Department building. It would come to be known as the Open Space Meeting. The purpose was to discuss the affidavit for a search warrant. How bad was it? What should they tell the public? Guerra was driven to the meeting and told never to discuss it outside that group. He complied. The meeting was kept secret, too. That held for five years. March 22, 2004, Guerra would finally confess it happened to investigators from the Colorado Attorney General. He would describe it as one of those cover-your-ass meetings. District Attorney Dave Thomas attended the meeting. 
He told the group he had found no probable cause for the investigators to have executed the draft warrant, a finding ridiculed once it was released. He was formally contradicted by the Colorado Attorney General in 2004. At a notorious press conference ten days after the murders, Jeffco officials suppressed the affidavit and boldly lied about what they had known. They said they could not find Eric's web pages. They found no evidence of pipe bombs matching Eric's descriptions and had no record of the Browns meeting with Hicks. Guerra's affidavit plainly contradicted all three claims. Officials had just spent days reviewing it. They would repeat the lies for years. Several days after the meeting, Investigator Guerra's file on his investigation of Eric disappeared for the first time. The cover-your-ass meeting was a strictly Jeffco affair, limited mostly to senior officials. Most of the detectives on the case, including the feds and cops from local jurisdictions, were unaware of the cover-up. They were trying to crack the case. Police detectives continued fanning out across Littleton. They had 2,000 students to interview, no telling where the truth might be tucked away. They all reported back to the leadership team in the Columbine band room. It was chaos. Guys were coming in with notes on scraps of paper and matchbook covers. At the end of the week, Kate Batten took control of the situation. She called everyone into the band room for a massive four-hour debriefing and information exchange. At the end of the meeting, three crucial questions remained. How had the killers gotten all the guns? How had they gotten the bombs into the school? Who had conspired to help them? Batten and her team had a good idea where the conspiracy lay. They had nearly a dozen chief suspects. They pitted two against each other. Chris Morris claimed he was innocent. Prove it, they said. Help us smoke out Duran. Chris agreed to a wiretap. On Saturday afternoon, he called Phil Duran from FBI headquarters in Denver, while federal agents listened in. They commiserated about how rough it had gotten. It's pretty crazy, man, Phil said. Yeah, the media's going psycho. Chris went for the kill, too soon. He had heard Duran had gone out shooting with the killers, and someone videotaped it. He mentioned the tape, but Duran brushed it off. For fourteen minutes they spoke. Chris kept circling back to it. Duran deflected as many times. I have no clue, dude, he said. Finally, Chris got an admission that Duran had been out shooting with Eric and Dylan. He got a name. The place was called Rampart Range. It didn't sound like much. It was leverage. On Sunday, an ATF agent paid Duran a visit. Duran told him everything. Eric and Dylan had approached him about a gun. He'd put them in touch with Mark Nains, who'd sold them the Tech-9. Duran admitted to relaying some of the money, but said he'd earned nothing on the deal. Every bit of that was true. Five days later, detectives hauled Nains into ATF headquarters in downtown Denver with attorneys for defense and prosecution. Maines made a full confession. Duran had introduced him to Eric and Dylan on January 23rd at the Tanner Gun Show, the same place the killers had bought the three other guns. Duran identified Eric as the buyer, and he did the talking. Maines agreed to sell the gun on credit. Eric would pay 300 now, 200 more when he could raise it. It was Dylan who showed up at Maines's house that night.
He handed over the down payment and picked up the gun. Duran delivered the two hundred a couple of weeks later. Detectives asked Maines repeatedly about the killer's ages. Eventually, he admitted that he'd assumed they were under eighteen. Maines had bought the Tech Nine at the same show, about six months earlier. He used his debit card. Later, he produced a bank statement showing he paid $491. He'd made $9 on the deal. It could cost him 18 years. Dr. Fusillet didn't think much about motive the first few days. It was kind of a moot point, and they had a conspiracy to rope in. Every minute, evidence could be vanishing, alibis arranged, cover stories coordinated. But curiosity soon intruded and refused to be dented. His mind kept returning to the critical question of why. With nearly a hundred detectives working the case, that central question largely fell to one. It began as a small part of Agent Fusillet's job. He was primarily concerned with leading the FBI team. He met daily with his team leaders. They briefed him, he asked questions, shot holes in their theories, suggested new questions, and challenged them to probe harder. He spent eight to ten hours a day leading that effort, and on Saturdays he drove into Denver to sort through his inbox at FBI headquarters. He had to get up to speed on the federal cases he had handed off and offer insight and suggestions where he could. But he began to carve out a little time every evening to assess the killers. He had teams of people to assemble the data, but no one else was qualified to analyze it. He was the only psychologist on the team. He had studied this very sort of killer for years for the FBI, and he knew what he was up against. Even if it meant a few hours of extra work each night, he was going to understand these boys. It pissed him off, watching them brag on video about the people they would maim. You damn little jerks! He would hear himself mutter, but sometimes he felt a little sorry for them. Their point of view was indefensible but he had to embrace it temporarily and empathize with them. If he refused to see the world through their lens, how would he ever understand how they could do it? They were high school kids. How did they get this way? Dylan, in particular, what a waste. Fusillet's peers and subordinates were glad someone had taken on the informal role of chief psychologist. They had a lot of questions about the killers, and they needed someone to turn to, one person who deeply understood the perps. Fusillet quickly became known internally as the expert on the two boys. Kate Batten was leading the day-to-day -day investigation, and everyone deferred to her on logistical questions, like who'd been running down a particular hallway at a certain moment during the attack. But Fusillet understood the perpetrators. He returned to Eric's journal over and over, and then Dylan's, poring over every line. About a week after the murders, Fusillet was introduced to the basement tapes and earlier footage Eric and Dylan had shot of themselves. He took the tapes home and watched them repeatedly. He hit the pause button frequently, advancing frame by frame, going back over revealing moments to dissect nuance. On the surface, much of the material was tedious and banal, little snippets of daily life, like the boys making dumb high school jokes with Chris Morris in the car and bickering over the drive through order at Wendy's. Nothing even tangentially related to the murders appeared on most of the tapes, but Fusillet soaked up ordinary impressions of his murderers. Fusillet watched 
or read every word from the killers dozens of times. His big break came just a few days after the murders, before he saw the basement tapes. Fusillet heard an ATF agent quoting a ghastly phrase Eric Harris had written. What you got there? Fusillet asked. A journal. For the past year of his life, Eric Harris had written down many of his plans in a journal. Fusillet zipped over and read the opening line. I hate the fucking world. When I read that first sentence, all the commotion in the band room ended, he said later. I just zoned out. Everything else faded. Suddenly, the big bombs began to make a lot more sense. The fucking world. That's not Brooks Brown, Fusillet said. That's not the jocks. That is an all-pervasive hate. Fusillet read a bit further, then turned to the ATF agent. Can I have a copy of this? The pages had been photocopied from a spiral notebook, sixteen handwritten pages and a dozen more of sketches and charts and diagrams. There were nineteen entries, all dated, running from April 10th, 1998 to April 3rd, 1999, seventeen days before Columbine. They ran a page or two at the beginning, then shortened considerably. With the last five crammed into the last page and a half, they were dark and fuzzy from too many trips through the copier. Eric's scrawl was hard to decipher at first, but Fusillet was reading again while the pages made another pass through the copy machine. It was mesmerizing, he said. The journal told infinitely more than Eric's website had. The website, which predated the journal by at least a year, was mostly vented rage. It told us who he hated, what he wanted to do to the world, and what he had already done. It said very little about why. The journal was angry, but deeply reflective, and infinitely more candid about the urges driving Eric to kill. Fusillet read while the photocopiers ran. He read on the walk back to the ATF agent's desk, and he stood there reading rather than return to his own chair. He didn't notice his back stiffening up for several minutes until the pain finally interrupted. Then he took a seat and kept reading. Holy shit, Fusillet thought. He's telling us why he did it. Eric would prove the easier killer to understand. Eric always knew what he was up to. Dylan did not. Part 3 The Downward Spiral 31. The Seeker Dylan's mind raced night and day, analyzing, inventing, deconstructing. He was 15. He had tagged along on the missions. He was Eric's number one go-to guy, and none of that mattered. Dylan's head was bursting with ideas, sounds, impressions. He could never turn the racket off. That asshole in gym class, his family, the girls he liked, the girls he loved but could never get. Why could he never get them? He was never going to get them. A guy could still dream, right? Dylan was in pain. Nobody got it. Vodka helped. The Internet did, too. Girls were hard to talk to. Instant messaging made it easier. Dylan would eye him alone in his room for hours at night. Vodka made the words flow, but reduced his ability to spell them. When an Internet girl called him on it, he laughed and admitted he was sloshed. It was easy to hide from his parents. They never suspected. It all happened quietly in his room. 
IMs were not enough. Too many secrets to hold on to. Too many concepts zipping over their heads. Suicide was consuming him. No way Dylan was confessing that. He tried explaining some of the other ideas, but people were too thick to understand. Shortly after the mission started, in the spring of sophomore year, March 31, 1997, Dylan got drunk, picked up a pen, and began the conversation with the one person who could understand. Himself. He imagined his journal as a stately old tome with oversized covers extending just past the parchment and a fine satin ribbon sewn into the binding, like in a Bible. All he had was a plain pad of notebook paper, college-ruled and three-hole punched. So he drew the imaginary cover on the cover. He titled his work, Existences, a Virtual Book. There was no hint of murder that first day, not even violence. Only traces of anger seeped out, mostly aimed at himself. Dylan was on a spiritual quest. I do shit to supposedly cleanse myself in a spiritual, moral sort of way, he wrote. He had tried deleting the doom files from his computer, tried staying sober, tried to stop making fun of kids. That was a tough one. Kids were so easy to ridicule. The spiritual purge wasn't helping. My existence is shit, he wrote. He described eternal suffering in infinite directions through infinite realities. Loneliness was the crux of the problem. But it ran deeper than just finding a friend. Dylan felt cut off from humanity. Humans were trapped in a box of our own construction, mental prisons caging us from a universe of possibilities. God, people were annoying. What were they afraid of? Dylan could see an entire universe opening up in his mind. He was a seeker. He sought to explore it all across time and space, and who knew how many dimensions? The possibilities were breathtaking. Who could fail to behold the wonder of it all? Almost everyone, unfortunately. Humans loved their little boxes, so safe and warm and comfy and boring. There were zombies by choice. Some of Dylan's ideas were hard to put into words. He drew squiggles in the margins and labeled them thought pictures. He was a profoundly religious young man. His family was not active in any congregation, yet Dylan's belief was unwavering. He believed in God without question, but constantly challenged his choices. Dylan would cry out, cursing God for making him a modern Job, demanding an explanation for the divine brutality of his faithful servant. Dylan believed in morality, ethics, and an afterlife. He wrote intently about the separation of body and soul. The body was meaningless, but his soul would live forever. It would reside either in the peaceful serenity of heaven or in the blistering tortures of hell. Dylan's anger would flare, then fizzle quickly into self-disgust. Dylan wasn't planning to kill anyone except, God willing, himself. He craved death for at least two years. The first mention comes in the first entry. Thinking of suicide gives me hope that I'll be in my place wherever I go after this life, that I'll finally not be at war with myself, the world, the universe, my mind, body, everywhere, everything, at peace, me, my soul, 
existence. But suicide posed a problem. Dylan believed in a literal heaven and hell. He would be a believer right up until the end. When he murdered several people, he knew there would be consequences. He would refer to them in his final video message, recorded on the morning he called Judgment Day. Dylan was unique, that much he was sure of. He had been watching the kids at school. Some were good, some bad, but all so utterly different from him. Dylan exceeded even Eric in his belief in his own singularity, but Eric equated unique with superior. Dylan saw it mostly as bad. Unique meant lonely. What good were special talents when there was no one to share them with? His moods came and went quickly. Dylan turned compassionate, then fatalistic. I don't fit in here, he complained. But the road to the afterlife was just monstrous. Go to school, be scared and nervous, hoping that people can accept me. Eric and Dylan both left journals behind. Dr. Fusillet would spend years studying them. At first glance, Dylan's looked more promising. Fusillet was hungry for data, and Dylan provided an impressive stack. His journal began a year earlier than Eric's, filled nearly five times as many pages, and remained active right up to the end. But Eric would begin his journal as a killer. He already knew where it would end. Every page pointed in the same direction. His purpose was not self-discovery, but self-lionization. Dylan was just trying to grapple with existence. He had no idea where he was headed. His ideas were all over the map. Dylan liked order. Each journal entry began with a three-line heading in the right margin, name, date, and title, all written out in half-sized letters. He then repeated the title, or sometimes adapted it, in double-sized characters centered above the main text. Most of the copy was printed, but occasionally he would veer into script. He wrote one entry a month, nearly every month, but hardly ever twice a month. He would fill two complete pages and then stop. If he ran out of ideas or interest, he would fill out the second page with huge lettering or sketches. His second entry came early, just two weeks after the first. His ideas were beginning to cohere. The battle between good and bad never ends, he wrote. Dylan would repeat this idea endlessly for the next two years. Good and evil, love and hate, always wrestling, never resolving. Pick your side, it's up to you, but you better pray it picks you back. Why would love never choose him? I don't know what I do wrong with people, he wrote. It's like they are set out to hate and insult me. I never know what to say or do. He had tried. He had brought in Chips Ahoy cookies to win them over. What exactly would it take? My life is still fucked, he wrote. In case you care, he had just lost $45. And before that, it was his Zippo lighter and his knife. True, he had gotten the first two back. But still, why the fuck is he being such an asshole? God, I guess, whoever is the being which controls shit, he's fucking me over big time, and it pisses me off. Good God, I hate my life. I want to die really bad right now. 32. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Sunday morning, April 25th. The Columbine churches were packed. 
Afterward, the crowds trekked down to the Bowles Crossing Shopping Center, across from Clement Park. Organizers had planned for up to 30,000 mourners in the sprawling parking lot. 70,000 showed up. Vice President Al Gore was on the platform, along with the governor, most of Colorado's congressional delegation, and a whole lot of clergy. The TV networks broadcast the ceremony live. Put your faith and trust in the living Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, Reverend Billy Graham's son Franklin instructed the crowd. We must be willing to receive his Son, Jesus Christ. Genuine lasting comfort comes only through Jesus Christ, local pastor Jerry Nelson proclaimed. We, your pastors, urge you, seek Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There was a whole lot of him that day. Reverend Graham dominated the ceremony with a long, impassioned appeal for returning prayer to public schools. He invoked the name of his personal Savior seven times in a single 45-second flurry. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? he asked. He called upon God and Jesus nearly 50 times in the course of the speech. Cassie had been ready, he said. She'd stood before a gunman who transported her immediately into the presence of Almighty God. Are you ready? he asked. Christian pop star Amy Grant sang twice. A drum and bugle corps performed a stirring rendition of Amazing Grace, and a succession of thirteen white doves were released as Governor Bill Owens recited the names of the victims. Toward the end, it began to rain, a slow, steady shower. Nobody moved. Thousands of umbrellas went up, but tens of thousands of mourners just got wet. For many, Cassie Bernal was the heroine of Columbine. Word spread quickly that her killer had held her at gunpoint and asked if she believed in God. Yes, she'd answered. She'd professed her faith and had promptly been shot in the head. Vice President Gore recounted her story to the crowd and the cameras. He quoted liberally from Scripture throughout his speech. To the families of the victims... You may feel the embrace of the literally hundreds of millions of Americans who grieve with you, Vice President Gore said. We hold your agony in the center of our prayers. You are not alone. The country was transfixed. In the first ten days, news magazines on the four main broadcast networks devoted 43 pieces to the attack. The shows dominated the ratings that week. CNN and Fox News charted the highest ratings in their history. A week afterward, USA Today was still running ten separate Columbine stories in a single edition. It would be nearly two weeks before the New York Times would print an issue without Columbine on page one. And Cassie Bernal's martyrdom was showing the most legs. Millions have been touched by a martyr, Pastor Kirsten proclaimed to his congregation. He shared a vision his youth pastor had received while ministering to the Bernals. I saw Cassie, and I saw Jesus, hand in hand, and they had just gotten married. They had just celebrated their marriage ceremony, and Cassie kind of winked over at me like, I'd like to talk, but I'm so much in love. Her greatest prayer was to find the right guy. Don't you think she did?
Kirsten consoled his grieving congregation, but he saw opportunity in the tragedy to unabashedly save more souls. Pack that ark with as many people as possible, he said. Down the road at the Foothills Bible Church, Pastor Uta Molin was sharing a similar enthusiasm. Men and women, open your eyes, he declared. The kids are turning to God. They're going to churches. Much of the Denver clergy was appalled. The opportunism at the public service drew an outcry, particularly from mainline Protestant pastors. Reverend Markshausen, the pastor who'd performed Dylan's funeral, told the Denver Post he'd felt hit over the head with Jesus at the service. Evangelicals faced a profound moral dilemma, respect for others' beliefs versus an obligation to stand up for Jesus as the only way every day. Eric and Dylan had terrorized the country, but they offered an invaluable opportunity as well. Evangelical clergy would answer to God if they wasted it. One thoughtful evangelical pastor said he approved of using the massacre for recruitment, as long as it was truly done for God. He bristled at spiritual headhunters just racking up another scalp. The Bible was never meant to be a club, he said. If I'm using it as a weapon, that's really sad. Craig Scott was a sophomore, 16 years old, and exceptionally good-looking, like his sister Rachel. He had hidden under a library table with Matthew Kichter and Isaiah Scholes. While he was down there, one of the gunmen yelled, Get anyone with white hats! Craig was wearing one. He yanked it off and stuffed it under his shirt. Both killers passed his table several times. They stopped there eventually, and both of them fired. Matt slumped. So did Isaiah. Craig was spared. The shots were so loud, Craig thought his ears were going to bleed. He spent much of his time in the fetal position, with his head down, silently praying for courage and strength. When he looked up to assess the damage, Matt and Isaiah had collapsed, leaning against each other and moaning. Their blood had pooled around Scott. He couldn't tell whose it was that had soaked into his pants. Smoke or steam was rising up from the rupture in Matt's side. Then the killers moved into the hallway. I think they're gone, Craig called out. Let's get out of here. Other kids were getting up slowly, heading for a side exit. Craig dropped his white hat on the floor by his table. On his way out, a girl under the computer desk said, Please help me. Casey rugged Seger had a big hole in her right shoulder. Scott helped her up. He draped her good arm over his shoulder and let her out. Outside, they ran for a police car parked on the side of the hill. Cops were there, pointing their guns at the library windows. Craig continued to pray. He asked other kids to join him. Craig had accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, and they needed him badly now. He led a small prayer group. The cops shuttled the wounded out first. When Craig's turn came, he heard more gunfire behind him. They're shooting at us, one of the cops said. The officers dropped the kids off at a cul-de-sac just off the school grounds. Craig joined hands with others in a group to pray. Then he got to a phone, called his mom, and asked her to pray for his sister. He had a bad feeling about her. He prayed that Rachel was not injured. Within an hour or two, he began accepting that she might be dead. She was. Rachel had been the first one killed on the lawn outside. Matt and Isaiah were dead, too. Casey lived. Craig took it hard. 
He had seen horrible things, but he'd heard something wonderful. In the worst of it in the library, he'd heard a girl profess her faith. Amazing. Craig began telling the story early that first afternoon. It spread like brush fire. Among evangelicals, emails, faxes, and phone calls whipped across the country. On Friday, it hit the mainstream media. Both Denver papers featured it. The Rockies' piece, Martyr for Her Faith, opened with a play-by-play. -play. A Columbine killer pointed his gun at Cassie Bernal and asked her the life-or-death question, Do you believe in God? She paused. The gun was still there. Yes, I believe in God, she said. That was the last thing this seventeen-year-old Christian would ever say. The gunman asked her why. She had no time to answer before she was shot to death. Bernal entered the Columbine High School library to study during lunch. She left a martyr. The Post ran a similar account. The national press quickly jumped aboard. On Saturday, an evangelical teen mania rally in Michigan turned into a Cassie Bernal festival, according to Weekly Standard writer Jay Bottom. He described 73,000 teens in the Silverdome weeping along with sermon after sermon about her death. On Sunday morning, it was proclaimed from countless pulpits. At first, her mother was unsure what to make of Cassie's martyrdom. But soon Misty was bursting with pride, and her husband Brad was, too. This tragic incident has been thrown back into the face of Satan, Brad said in a statement. He called on teens to step forward while the enemy was in retreat. To all young people who hear this, don't let my daughter's death be for nothing. Make your stand. If you're not in the local church's youth group, try it. They want you, and they will help support you. On Monday, Brad and Misty were featured on a 2020 segment titled Portrait of an Angel. Stories were circulating that the killers had targeted evangelicals as well as jocks and minorities. Brad's community presumed that Cassie's response had provoked the killer to shoot. She knew where he was coming from, Brad said, and she was saying that you can't defeat me, you can't really kill me, you can take my body away, but you can't kill me. I'm going to live in heaven forever. Initially, Brad seemed to draw a bit more strength from Cassie's bravery than Misty did. You wake up crying, she said. I hope one day I can wake up in the morning and not cry. But I said to Brad, I wondered how they could do this. Why did they kill our baby girl? Why did they do that? Why? A few days after the 2020 segment, Brad and Misty appeared on Oprah. Do you wish she had said no? Oprah asked. Knowing that a girl begged for her life and was released made a big difference, Misty said. Eric had taunted Brie Pasquale for several minutes, repeatedly forcing her to beg, then finally dismissed her. As a mom, you would have wanted her to beg, Misty said. So on the one hand, you're like, yeah, I'd have wanted her to beg. But I can't think of a more honorable way to die than to profess your faith in God. Context of White Supremacy, the Catherine Massey Book Club. That's where we and that was so well timed. That was so well timed. I just said that like day. I thought we already read that. Okay, so now we have moving forward. Now we're all at the same spot. Bang. That's what I said about we one pin removed. Number is six oh five three one three five one 
64 the code 564-943 pound press star 61 if you would like to participate email until justice at gmail.com if you dialed in uh, and you have commentary or questions uh, do not wait till the last minute go ahead and get a hand up uh, quickly Chris Morris uh, I think they some of the folks said that they saw where he was arrested uh, right the day of the shooting we covered that that was I think maybe the first or second session but that was some weeks back he talked about that and he cooperated with the <clears throat> police officers parents went there and all the rest of it concluded that he was uh, innocent but yeah, that's already been discussed in our chit chat okay let's see let's get the folks that we missed totally first let's see the caller at 1159 I don't think we heard from you first time around did you have commentary you're a little low if you could speak up or get closer to your receiver uh, better. That's an improvement, yes, sir. Uh, in the first section, um, when the uh, author is, is uh, writing about how much reading um, one of the killers did, I thought that was very uh, fascinating. Not only the, not only am I being trained to be like uh, really skilled and want to go out and learn constructive. Um, Activities like understanding and using firearms. They also, um, a lot of them are trained and taught, hey, you know, do some reading. Don't just read about nonsense, fantasy, and, and fiction. Read something about things that um, happen. And uh, that is really, really fascinating to me, especially and tragic when you compare it to what we, as now my people, are um, trained and taught to um, do with our time and energy. A lot of, um, Area 7, Mania, um, and um, this Dillard is a perfect example of the um, Yerubi, you know, just arguing with um, what he believes to be um, God, totally disconnected with um, the creator, uh, a lot of discontent regarding um, the universe, uh, literally warring with uh, himself, people, the universe is excellent example of like what, what is the Yuri, how does the Yuri think, from my observation. Um, the uh, lady who's saying that she thinks it's no better, like, no, no more honorable, honorable way to die than professing um, your, your love for God, that's absolutely uh, more religious mania from my observation. Much obliged. Thank you for sharing. Uh, that's why I said that <clears throat> Christian, Oprah Winfrey, two times. I didn't even know she was coming up in this week's segment. I promise you, I did not. I just, I literally <clears throat> had doing my been doing my Columbine research. That's how I found Doctor Flowers, and I found the Oprah. Oh. I didn't find the Oprah Winfrey article that was on that flipping Columbine forum. 
they mentioned the Oprah Winfrey. Oh, no, I'm sorry. They didn't mention a lot, but that was Dave Cullen. Dave Cullen uh, mentioned her Oprah Winfrey article in that Elmhurst conversation. I think one of you all mentioned that already, but that's where he mentioned it. And then she, they had Casey Bernal's uh, parents on to talk about her giving up her life for Jesus and all dying. So I'm going to have to see if I can go find uh, some of these. Like Oprah sometimes is stingy with sharing content from her show, but I'm going to give it a go. If I can find it, bang, that will be our intro for next week or the I guess the backup prize consolation prize would be that uh, Diane Sawyer they're a little easier to locate so I'll see if I can nab one of those two for us for next week okay other folks who dialed in uh, with a hand up Z's mom Lauren uh, caller at 9086 you all should all be with us if you have commentary proceed can I be heard yes ma'am um, I thought it was so interesting that the previous caller said that that um, Dylan reminded them of your review because I thought the same thing. I actually opened the book while they were reading Eric's passages, and I thought it reminded me so much of your Um Just the idea of like superiority, but also feeling like inferior and disgust within themselves, but externalizing it. It reminds me so much of the book and I, I would um, might possibly read more of their diaries because it might be interesting to analyze it from that perspective. Uh, I remember hearing that Cassie Bernal story so many times because I grew up with a family member that was very, very deep into um, kind of like evangelical Christian religion. And so I heard that story a lot, um, but I don't know if, I mean, I've heard different things that that story is not actually accurate, but I'm not sure, but it was like a huge um, marketing tool. I think they even, they wrote a book about it. It's called like She Said Yes or something to get young people into Christianity, evangelical Christianity. So I thought that was really interesting. That I mean, I knew they were going to bring it up, but the part that was really disturbing to me was I think the, the preacher said something about her holding hands with Jesus and then Mary and she's winking and she's like, I'm with the man I love. I'm in love with now. I thought that was so odd and oddly like pedophilic because she's like, what's a 16 year old child or something. It was, I don't know. It was just, it's, I found it to be very weird to imply that she's like in some sort of romantic relationship with Jesus, but I just figured that that's like makes sense if you understand like how white people function. Um, I think that's all I have to say for now. Thank you. She said yes, absolutely. That's interesting because I didn't remember all of this, but I guess I didn't have someone who was into all the evangelical worship but yes this was a big to do and this another one now is this true that this happened that's why I say she'd be the big is this true is this accurate ooh find that with a whole lot of these with Columbine like bullied no school shooting no she said yes no 
Yeah, what are you going to do? But that book is available. She said yes, and I think this also was a bestseller along with Sue Klebold's A Mother's Reckoning. Ah, she hated it, and you get a bestseller. Like, come on now. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. May I be heard? Lauren, yes, ma'am. Um, yes, sir. First, I I did look. Um, I did a Google, and Makai Hall looks like he would be classified as white. That's the guy who was in the wheelchair, got shot in the knee, acted like um, Eric and Dylan weren't so bad. Um. Uh, my first comment, though, it comes um, from the end of session one. Eric's dad, he was, like, writing in a tablet about what was going on with um, his son. And he writes, we feel victimized, too. We don't want to be accused every time something happens. Eric learned his lesson. He crossed out the last phrase and wrote, is not at fault. So he changed, Eric learned his lesson to Eric is not at fault. That wasn't really for even anyone to read, I didn't think. I thought it was just his personal writing. But um, to me, it kind of shows that he knew the kind of person that Eric was. And, you know, because he wouldn't say he learned his lesson. He understood the importance of words right there. He, He reworded that, even though it was just for himself, in my view. Um, there was another part. It said before Eric and Dylan shot themselves, officers had discovered files on the boys. The cops had 12 pages from Eric's website spewing hate and threatening to kill. Uh, for detectives, a written confession discovered before the killers were captured was a big break. It certainly simplified the search warrant, but for commanders, a public confession, which they had sat on since 1997, that could be a PR disaster. Um, a couple of things about that part confused me a little bit. First, I wasn't sure that they actually discovered the files on the boys because earlier in Chapter 17, um, it said, more disturbing was a complaint filed 13 months earlier by Randy and Judy Brown, the parents of the shooter's friend, Brooks. Eric had made death threats toward Brooks. Ten pages of murderous rants printed from his website had been compiled. Someone in Batan's department had known about this kid. Now, so it doesn't really say um, who discovered it, but I just thought when I read that the first time, um, that the Browns printed that out and brought that to the police. I don't know. It doesn't say, though. And here's, like, what I was really wondering, though. If they brought it to the police, um, you know, and they decided not to do anything, you know, it kind of makes sense. But if they actually, you know, did the investigation and found that, it seems like they would, you know, have a responsibility to do something. And and it also did say they... um. It was an investigation. Hold on. Let me see. It's a 13 months before the massacre, John Higgs and Guerra had investigated one of the Browns' complaints. They discovered substantial 
I guess, evidence that Eric was building pipe bombs. Guerrero considered it serious enough to draft an affidavit for a search warrant against the Harris home. For some reason, the warrant was never taken before the judge. Um, so, you know, I thought to myself that they didn't do anything because they broke the rule. It seems like white people are really good at not um, giving people information. They're excellent at keeping secrets, um, withholding information, just omitting lying. The no snitch policy seems to be in full effect with these white people in this town. Um, even, you know, Eric's father, he was writing that tablet and he said, um, the issue was over and done with. Don't discuss with friends. Leave each other alone. Don't talk about it. Agreed. All discussion is over with. The whole, like, everybody is just really being quiet. The only one talking about anything is the Browns. You know, they reported them to the police. And, you know, I think um, the way they were disregarded and, you know, that might have been punishment for breaking the no snitch policy. I don't know. Um, let me see. There was another part where um, the author, he's talking about Dylan. And it said he was profoundly, re he was a profoundly religious young man. Um, his family was not active in any congregation, yet Dylan's belief was unwavering. He believed in God without question, but constantly challenged his choices. Dylan would cry out, cursing God for making him a modern joke. Mm. Now, I'm not um, a biblical scholar, but I think that's the one thing that Job did not do. He didn't curse or denounce God. Um, you know, that's that was that's the whole story. So, you know, I'm asking myself a couple of questions. Um, does, does believing in God make a person profoundly religious? What do you have to do to be classified as profoundly religious? Um, because just believing in God, that doesn't seem like a lot. It seems like a, a very small, I don't know, it's almost, Inaction, maybe belief is action. I don't know, um, but yeah, I, I just wondered about that part um, when they were talking about Cassie Bernal's martyrdom. The lady before me, when she was talking, um, that part where it said Pastor Kirsten proclaimed to his congregation he shared a vision his youth pastor had received while ministering to the Bernals. I saw Cassie and I saw Jesus hand in hand, and they had just gotten married. They had just celebrated their marriage ceremony, and Cassie kind of winked over at me like, I'd like to talk, but I'm so much in love. Her greatest prayer was to find the right guy. Don't you think she did? I don't know, man. That part was really weird to me. Um, it was kind of inappropriate. I don't know. Maybe my brain computer is not functioning properly. Um, that's all I have right now. Thank you. I mean, I don't. He said that. <clears throat> excuse me. Drink more water. Uh, Cullen. He told us that Dylan is profoundly spiritual. He said he was doing a a, a spiritual purge. You know, he wrote a what? 
don't know what more do you have to do to be to demonstrate his his religious commitment I don't uh, it's messed up man it's messed up uh, much obliged Lauren questioning whether or not Dylan is this profoundly moral person that we hear about uh, Savant our caller that was the first time around uh, that she shared uh, after our first audio segment much obliged uh, Lauren uh, two people saying that the marriage thing sounded kind of pedophilic at minimum incorrect suspicious other folks have commentary anybody we missed we nabbed Can everybody I say one more thing? Z's mom yes ma'am isn't it so interesting how the police literally went somewhere and conspired to lie or misrepresent information that they knew about the warrant. Isn't that illegal? Like, and then they just discuss it, like Dave Cohen discusses it, and then there doesn't seem to be any repercussions for that, even though they're literally conspiring to. And I thought that was just very interesting. It shows how white people really know how to stay on clothes. They know how to move to a secret location to have certain conversations and who to allow in the conversations and who to allow out of it to make sure that they keep their jobs, even though they're supposed to quote unquote protecting their. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Hmm. At minimum, that's uh, what they call obstruction of justice. At minimum, uh, and that that might be one of those. I think the legal term is under the color of law type crimes. That is a legal term where if you are an enforcement officer and you go out and are violating people or what have you, which this would seem to be like, ooh, that's supposed to be an even more serious crime because you are violating your authority in that office as a public servant. And this is white people that now if they're doing this to other white people, mostly Isaiah Shoals. Isaiah Shoals and thirteen white people. They're doing this to them yikes imagine when it's Ralph Yarl and us Okaldokles uh, different person wrote in email number two greetings Gus I have an acquaintance who went to school at Columbine has to be white and there was the day of the and was there the day of the incident it has taken me a while to connect with him he is not someone I know very well but he was willing to talk about what he remembers as you can imagine he should have wrote a book I was not completely comfortable asking him about his about this since we are not too more are not more than casual acquaintances but he seems to be very open about sharing his thoughts for the rest of the book club I will try to share some of his thoughts he is classified as white his words are in quotes and bold type I have chosen to paraphrase his responses one I started at the school a few months before the incident his parents transferred him there because it was the safe school he described his previous high school as more diverse than Columbine lots of ethnicities more variable home structures some kids on food stamps some kids had wealthy parents he was involved in what he described as teenage shenanigans at the previous school and I think this his parents felt he was in a bad environment and wanted him to have better friends too he described <clears throat> Columbine as preppy predominantly white duh 
known to be full of rich kids, not much diversity, duh, gotta say it two times, handful of Asian kids, a few blacks, three times, we got it, couple Mexicans, <laughs> couple Mexicans, rest were white, oh, this is in quotes, so you gotta tell us like 50 times, like, we really didn't have a lot of dark people, like, it was mostly white people, <laughs> like, no, black. we got it, we got it, we got it, okay, Hummers, BMWs, we heard that already too, Mercedes, we heard all this before, they said that, that's what Rebel and Vodka had, BMW, Mercedes in the student parking lot, Abercrombie and Fitch could have used Columbine in their ads. Abercrombie's target audience, richer, more stuck up, entitled kids, nicer exterior, fancier halls. Other than that, seemed like any other high school. Now, this is exactly what Dave Columbine said. They said in the newspaper, they were like, hey, what are you trying to smear and tar us for? What are you trying to make us sound all... <laughs> anyway, he continues. Number three. He heard them, trench coat mafia, they were called a bunch of goth fags, all in quote, is basically all he heard. They wore all black, kept to themselves. Four, he did not know Harris and Klebold, but his best friend told him jock kids were pretty ruthless to them, slammed them against lockers, thrown in showers, urinated on by the football team. Milk food products poured on them over lunch hours, slamming against lockers. He wouldn't say they were popular. People probably knew their names. Whether this is information is something his friend heard versus witnessed, I am not sure. I will ask him to clarify. Yeah, that would be great if he saw this or because this might be the TV loop feedback thing. But I mean, yeah, let's see. Let's see if he saw this. Continuing. Of course, this is just one person's view and he only transferred to the school a few months prior to the incident but i thought it might be interesting to get a first person perspective i just received this response to my initial questions so i haven't had a chance to go over all of them i'll share more next week ask him what he remembers about isaiah shows that would be interesting anyway chapter 27 number one eric was evolving inside they were just like everyone else edge your look combat boots black boisterous uh, i guess harris's parents response seems to be no problem nothing to see here i guess chapter 28 trench coat mafia was mythologized outcast we just heard that goths we just heard that no targets no feuds no trench coat mafia no connection to marilyn manson hitler's birthday minorities or christians black trench coats black makeup worn by goths and manson minorities code for black maybe all symbols that dr welsing would find interesting i'm sure she that's why i said that's why i said let's get the welsing institute audio from may 99 and june 99 let's see what she said what did she you know it's got to be there let's hear it number two uh brie pasquale library whore marquee witness jocks minorities hat wearers bullying racism target theory racism seems to have been a big issue at columbine i think the author is being deceptive in this passage it's not clear if he thought it was or was not an issue at the school and whether or not it was an issue in the massacre isaiah shoals quit the football team due to racial intimidation isaiah talked with his parents and complained to the school officials about racism practiced at the school. The last word, oh, hey, hey, you go all the getting in, getting ahead, getting ahead, getting ahead. Uh, let's see, number three, uh, 153. Dr. Fran Ochberg, psychiatrist, Michigan State, PTSD, developed in 1970s. Stress induced traumatic experience, experiences, profound effects, St. Anthony's. 
Uh, let's see. Dr. Oakberg developed the counting method of treatment for PTSD. The therapist counts to 100 while the client silently recounts the traumatic experience. Hmm. Page 145. Dr. Alan Weintraub, neurologist, Craig Hospital, leading rehab centers in the world. This physician seems to be still practicing medicine. Hey, system of white supremacy. They got good health care. Uh, page 155 to 158. No evidence that bullying led to the murders. Evidence it was a problem. Columbine High. Uh, Mr. D insisted was unaware. Uh, he had a blind spot for outsiders. Bullying, yes, was a problem, but not racism, white supremacy. Uh, good good. This is a question. Question. Uh, page 159. Difficult social scientist, journalist to come up to Little Littleton later to study community Heisenberg's uncertainty principle breaking bad moment uh, observing an ent- entity you alter it quantum physicist social scientist I wonder if this is also true of the study of the global system of racism white supremacy maybe chapter 29 extinction fantasies they would meet at Eric's house mostly sneak out after midnight and vandalize uh, households of kids he didn't like. I suspect a lot of white parents would rationalize this vandalism as boys will just be boys. Oh, for sh- shenanigans, what that fella said. Two, Eric dubbed his pranks the missions. Misfit geniuses. Gee, see, I told you. What do you mean, idiots? Geniuses. In American society, John Steinbeck's The Pastures of Heaven, which includes a fable about the idiot savant mentioned already. It is a interconnected group of short stories. A recurrent theme in the book is the pain caused when people try to ineptly to help or to please others. Is this another reason Eric resonated with this book? He saw the world as an inept group of people who were sycophants. Sorry. Three. Eric got mad at Brooks. He grabbed another hunk and cracked the windshield of Brooks' Mercedes. Brooks knew lots of Eric's secrets and spilled them all. Your son's been sneaking out. He's been vandalizing things. The parents minimizing the terroristic behavior these psychopaths of these psychopaths, I think, is an important revelation in this book. Oh, for sure. And that there's even some of this in Klebold's own memoir, if you're interested in reading or whatever. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> Number 30, or chapter 30, sorry. Jeffco had a problem. <clears throat> Before De- Eric and Dylan shot themselves, for commanders, a public confession, Randy and Judy Brown had warned the sheriff's department repeatedly about Eric for more than a year and a half. They would spend several years repeating those denials. They suppressed the damning warrants as well. Evidence that Eric was building pipe bombs. The warrant was never taken before a judge. They would repeat the lies for years. Another theme of this book is the incompetence of enforcement officials, or maybe they are just conditioned to not see white perpetrators as threats. Didn't she say that? I read that from Dr. Fowler's book. That's not who we are accustomed. It's supposed to be Leroy Jamal. Matter of fact, I was getting the archives for this case because they suppressed this for years, he said. So I was going through and reading the archives. This court battle about Columbine went through the Kobe Bryant rape case, which was in Denver, Colorado. Sometimes they'll have articles side by side. Kobe Bryant's rape trial 
update in the battle over the Littleton court files. But that's who we're accustomed to seeing as the criminal. Oh, raping Kobe Bryant come out here and mess things. That's who the criminal is, not rebel. Vodka. That's what Dr. Fowler said. We don't look at this shooting problem as, hey, same way we looked at the crack babies. We got to get these niggers under control. White shooters, mostly white male, but not all, but mostly. Let's see. Or oh, I didn't even finish it all. Or maybe they just continued it. Uh, thus, they have to be a lackadaisical attitude towards white males and females. They are seen as children as opposed to black children who are often characterized as older. Dr. Fowler said we see them as short adults like Tamir Rice number two Dr. Fusilay FBI but sometimes he felt a little sorry for them oh god he says no empathy for black males of course chapter 31 uh, Dylan was in pain vodka loneliness was the crux of the problem profoundly religious profoundly religious young man told you he believed in God see Lauren Dylan wasn't planning to kill anyone he craved death for two years Fusilay would spend years studying them Eric and Dylan both left journals behind Uh, the author seems very interested very vested sorry in showing Klebold as a character worthy of empathy and having Harris as the primary villain Klebold is so smart but was duped by Harris into committing these atrocities that is basically the way that folks would like us to view all of this Mm. 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 chapter 32 for many Casey Bernal was the heroine of Columbine word spread quickly that her killer had held her at gunpoint and asked if she believed in God on Monday Brad and Misty were featured on a 2020 segment titled portrait of an Jesus Christ what I say all the time Michael Brown Jr., you can go and pile up the newspaper articles. He was shot and killed as a teen. It was Al. Michael Brown Jr. is no angel. We talked about this. You can go pile them up. They got some of these, I think, even in the New York Times. Eric Garner. You can put the nigger in there. Whoever. Uh, Andrew Loku. You can go global. I don't care who it is. They're going to go back. Well, yeah, he was no angel. You know. <laughs> I mean, you got about 15 parking tickets. I know he tweeted something about black females. You know, that Eric Garner was, you know, he was no angel. <laughs> Selling cigarettes. <laughs> that Gusty Rennie, he, he was no angel. <laughs> Casey Bernal. Portrait of an angel. I thought she was into, didn't they say she was into Wiccan <laughs> all that early? Like, wait a minute now. Wait a minute. Come on. And then they wrote that whole book. She said, yes, they, <sighs> Jesus, let's see. Uh, oh, he wrote another theme of this book is how much wrong information was said and written about these events. Jesus Christ, tell me about it. Another reason it is important to read. Then you can start to think like, wait a minute. Uh, and the last one, let's see. Uh, uh, I don't even think we got. Yeah, we didn't get that far. We'll pause there. Uh, let's see. Uh, I didn't even get to mine. Let's see if I can share a few thoughts from the second section Uh, back up 31 we skipped oh we didn't get to 30 Uh, let's see oh my god the cover I can't believe it can't believe it pull the wool over is in the word guide we got that they put the silly putty on the Mercedes I think you probably have a more difficult time doing all this now because they got cameras everywhere 
they spent years that right there master deceivers you stick to your lie you might have to stick to it like generationally like Carolyn Bryant Dunham I well, Emmett Till as he even though Angel either I don't know anybody you got to know no way mm-hmm. and you just lie you have to lie for 70 years you lie for 70 years that's mastered it. it seems they hung in there for a good four years until they they got to have you red-handed evidence metaphor like okay we gotta you got us man we were gonna take that lie to the grave uh, they couldn't believe it. They told the New York Times they had contacted the sheriff's department about Eric 15 times. Now, again, do you think they could contact Leroy? Contact him about Leroy 15 times? And they just can't. And particularly if Leroy is pipe bombs and underage drinking and underage firearms. <laughs> they go, eh, we get to Leroy. We, we, we got to just give us. We're going to get Leroy. Just <laughs> give I, Come on. Let's see. Uh, da, da, da. They said a few days after the master, about a dozen local officials slipped away from the feds. (laughs) Come on. They gathered clandestinely in an innocuous office in the county. Now, then people turn around and get an attitude and say, you talking about conspiracy theories. That right there is conspiring clandestine are you serious from the fed and in this context you got dead children like hey let's build if we messed up if somebody should be fired i should be fired we got dead children here we could have nipped this in the bud i don't deserve this job let me pass in my shield right oh no we got 401k and pension i got these dental programs and everything i got these children we're gonna lie on this one as long as we can and even when we get caught they'll be focused on kobe Bryant. we can get that nigger came up here and raped everybody well wait a minute shouldn't somebody with that nigger came up here and raped someone and that was that let's see unjust networking all that would sound out right cover your behind meeting and no snitch right we said that masters lauren got that uh they suppress that's why i got moo somebody asked me about that today what does that mean moo it means minimize already heard that one no they weren't terrorists just shenanigans and you know the boys will be boys everybody makes a pipe bomb you know minimize obfuscate and omit well we're just gonna leave out that oh yeah we had the search warning we didn't even ask it was keep quiet they do that sort of thing all the time in the system of white supremacy racism and again these were mostly white children isaiah shows and a bunch of white people what is it when you know you have white people that go out and do things practice racism kill black people and all the rest what do they do then Jesus, let's see. And he even separates out, he makes a distinction that this was just the upper level white police officers, that the uh, lower level uh, grunts that were out doing the work and investigating that they were trying to crack the case, or I guess there's no case to crack per se. Metaphor is just trying to, you know, assemble evidence and figure out why this happened at this point. Uh, so I guess they were trying to do that so called. Uh, let's see this uh, gun sale where Duran 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 whatever it is D U R A D 
D-U-R-A-N. Uh, this white boy, he sells this gun that they aren't even supposed to have for $491. He made $9. See, the, even that. White people hook up other white people. I'm making the illicit arms sale. I'm not even doing this for money. Most of the time, it would be, well, since, you know, you're underage and I could get 18 years for this, hey, it would be 500 in the store. Give me 750 Hey, I mean, the inflation on that could be big. Give me 1000 you know, you got a job, go save up for the summer and it's going to have to be a thousand bucks. Cause I mean, Hey, I could be looking at 18 years for this. You go do something wacky, like shoot up the school or whatever. Your mom searches your room. It costs 500. Give me a thousand. Give me 1500. You know, it was less than $9. Jesus Christ. Come on, come on, come on. You're not even doing this for the money. Apparently <laughs> I'm just hooking up my white homies. Let's see. This would be one I would point out, too, for the people who say gun laws. They already had gun laws in place for that transaction that wasn't supposed to happen. So this wasn't a gun law problem. I guess you could make it more known, but I suspect he already knew what the law was. Uh, Let's see. All this liquor drinking, too. That's another one. Both of these parents, you're lame. I don't want to hear anything about that. Like your children habitually have all this liquor in the house and you don't know anything about it. Get out you don't go in your room my mom came in my room all the time you don't go in there and look at all come on you're all the time lame and if they're drinking at home like you don't ever go and bump into them smell them come on come on come on you all are all day long lame let's see profound yeah i highlighted that too uh with lauren profoundly like are you serious like uh it's a whole lot of white people, a whole lot of non-white people, too, who claim they are profoundly religious. The religion on the planet is the religion of white supremacy. And that might be what they were talking about. But I mean, if you mean something in terms of being a moral, well-behaved person, even courteous, what are you talking about with these rebel and vodka? Even the names that they took. Does that sound like Simba? Profoundly religious man I think about moral things justice universal man really my nickname shall be vodka yes that sounds moral and pious come on man they gotta be they gotta be religious and geniuses and victims of bullying like Jesus Christ come on come on come on uh, he brought. What do you bring him to curry favor with white people? What you bring him? What you bring him? Chocolate. Mm. And even that didn't work. Should have tried Godiva, maybe. Uh, we get the Jesus chapter. White Jesus. We'll have to hear about now. Is this true? Did this happen? They put a gun to Casey Bernal's skull. Do you believe in God? Yes. Bow. And she went to be wed with Jesus. Did that happen? Let's see. We got to get this. If I get this segment, bang, 2020, we will be listening to that next week. Uh, Or uh, really, Oprah. I would rather have the Oprah one. If anybody can find it before then, that'll save me some library work. Uh, Let me know, and I will share, and we'll do the Oprah one. If not, we'll fall back on 2020. I suspect that'll be uh, easier to find. I, too, thought that that whole, uh, I don't know. I don't even know what you call that uh, wedding to Jesus, like super weird at the minimum. 
I would do everybody, everything everybody said, like right there with you. Like what in the WTF? We'll leave it there. 33. Oh, we didn't get that far. Stop there. All righty. Uh, a ways to go. I think we're about the halfway point thereabouts, give or take lots to uh, stew on before we complete much obliged for the folks writing in sharing. Hopefully it's been worthy. I have learned tons. So hopefully, you know, learning something that we can apply to solving the problem and for attempted parents, this for sure is something to think about because I did not before like, dang, I guess you should think about these school shootings. Like, oh my God, like, uh, are we for real going to send them to school and hope that Dylan, Eric, don't figure out the explosive thing correctly this time? Like, really? Anywho, uh, if you are an attempted parent and your children are in school, you should be talking to this, talking to them about this for sure. And even these types of signs, these pranks, shenanigans, the anarchist cookbook, all of those types of things. I would point all of that out. Red flags, as they say, sobriety would be best. That would be another one. Ah, oh, all of the underage drinking. Do you see where that led? Didn't end up in a moral, religious spot. Sobriety would be best. Model that for your children. We'll be here tomorrow for the uh, neutralizing workplace racism. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in what does it mean to be white nigga you so brainwashed I'm a victim Your brother problem. you're a victim right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning mm-hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.